אוקיי, בסדר, בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, very good to be here, בעזרת השם. אירנה ונטורה, we have our שיעור, we are up to מוסר פרקי אבות 124. couple of shiurim were about the same Mishnah in Perkei Avot that uh, talks about Kolam Ezekiah Rabim and all the people that do Kiruv or all the people that do Richuk, the opposite. And um, we talked about the significance of doing Kiruv. We talked about the uh, foolishness of doing the opposite, getting people away from Hashem. Um, but, and uh, one of the things that I actually planned on doing is talking about actually how to do it. Uh, obviously, other than the obvious of you know being a speaker and so on, more more things than that. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that because I think that uh, it's a very critical part that uh, needs to be said. It's a very critical part of uh, every Baal Tshuva. If you uh, look at their wish list when they first do Tshuva, the first part of their wish list is for the rest of their family to join them. You know, yeah, of course, everybody wants a, the, the money and uh, happiness and so on and so forth. But really, some of the most uh, difficult battles that a person will uh, deal with in their life is uh, when their, um, uh, their direction of life starts going the opposite of the rest of their family. It's a very difficult battle uh, from experience, from uh, you know, myself, students, and so on over the years. It's probably one of the most difficult parts of tshuva. It's probably one of the most difficult parts of tshuva is to see that uh, you have been enlightened. You see the truth, but everyone else around you still sees darkness and it's killing you. It's killing you. So some people try to do kiruv by repeating some of the things that we uh, say in lectures. And some succeed, but more people fail than succeed. More people fail than succeed. We'll talk about why. Um, the other thing is is that uh, you see that there is a lot of speakers in the world. Baruch Hashem, there's a new speaker every week. But there's not that many people relevant, you know, relative to the amount of speakers. There's not that many Jewish communities being built. There's not that many people relative to the amount of speakers, or at least to the amount of... Um, things that are going on in the world, it doesn't seem like there's, uh, there's uh, that many people doing tshuva through all these speakers. Why is one speaker more successful than the other? Why is one guy going to help build an entire community, whereas another guy, maybe uh, he built an ant farm? Why? So these are questions we have to ask ourselves. So Bezot Hashem, We'll uh, do part three of the uh, Y Kiruv Zikwei Rabim lecture to talk more about that. If you have specific questions, we can answer them. Shir will also be for Refua Shlema to Levana Batsara, Yochevet Bat Batya, Elisheva Chaya Bat Sara, Doris Bat Jora, David Ben Esria, Dvora Bat Mercedes.
שרון בת רבקה, בעזרת השם, all of עמי ישראל will have רפואה שלמה, רפואת הנפש, רפואת הגוף. Now, every day when you pray in the morning, you are supposed to pray the whole prayer and not just get there for Amida. So when you pray in the morning, you say a part in the early, early part of prayer, Ayiratsun. Now after you go over the Akedat uh, Yitzchak, which is uh, one of my uh, personal favorite parts of the tefillah, and you go over and over every single day with no failure about the Maaseh, about the event that happened with Avram and his son Yitzchak, and how he nearly almost killed his own son for the sake of Hashem, for Kvod Hashem, for the honor of Hashem. And we go over it, and, and, and that merit is what began Am Yisrael. That merit that somebody was willing to put his most prized possession, his most prized anything, uh, for the sake of Hashem. When it says, "Ve'afta et Hashem elokecha bechol levabecha bechol nafshecha bechol meodecha," in the Shema Yisrael, which is in the Book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter six, verse four, it says that you love Hashem with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your possession. The Chachamim, some of the Chachamim, explain that all of your possession literally means your most prized possession. If your most prized possession is your entire bankroll because you value your money even more than your life, that's what your life is about, then that's what Hashem is asking you. He's asking you for all your money. You want to be like Avraham Avinu? He's asking you for all your money. If all your money will go for the sake of Torah. If your most prized is a different talent that you have, then that's what he wants, and so on and so forth. For Avraham, Avraham had... Something that he's been waiting for his entire life, almost a hundred years. He was waiting for a way to fulfill the will of Hashem, which is to start a nation. Hashem promised him you're going to start a nation. And he knew it's not coming from Hagal. It's not coming from Hagal, it's not coming from Ishmael. So when he had the miracle, him, Sarah had the miracle of having... Yitzchak, to him this was the highlight of his life. So if you fast forward 37 years, Yitzchak gets to the age of 37. Fast forward, the train comes. And Hashem tells him, listen, you uh, bring, bring Yitzchak to, to, to the mountain. And Avraham understands it. Oh, I'm going to have to bring my son as a korban. For Hashem. Now, Hashem didn't say bring him in the morning. He just said bring him. Avram, it says, did it in Babukil. Did it early, early in the morning. Why? He says, if Hashem wants me to do something, Hashem wants me to fulfill a mitzvah, I'm going to do it as soon as possible. I'm not going to delay it by a minute. I'm not going to delay it by an hour. Even though I want to, even though I would like to, I'm not going to do it. And we see the same thing the same midah, the same character trait in Moshe Rabbeinu in this week's parasha, the beginning of 
Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, where Moshe Rabbeinu tells Am Yisrael, these are the words that Moshe spoke to Israel, all of Israel. This whole book, this whole book of Deuteronomy was in essence the journal, if you will. The journal that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote over the 40 years. That initially he wrote it for himself, but Hashem told him, add this to the other four books and make it the fifth book of the Torah. Even though the first four books, Hashem wrote. First four books, Hashem dictated to Moshe. You know, Bereshit, right Bereshit. Bara, every word he told told Moshe Rabbeinu. The the, uh, Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote on his own. Of course, Ruach HaKodesh and so on, but the point is, he wrote on his own. It was own, his own personal experience. And one of the ways that you see it, as he says throughout the entire first four books, it constantly says, Vaidaber Hashem el Moshe. Vaidaber Hashem el Moshe. Hashem spoke to Moshe. But here, in Sefer Dvarim, it doesn't say it anymore. Moshe says, Hashem spoke to me. Meaning he's telling them about what happened. It's from his point of view, not Hashem's point of view. So here, in the beginning of Sefer Dvarim, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu tells Am Yisrael that we're now going to go. He tells them about all the things they went through. But first and foremost, you should know that you're going to go to a war. And after this war, Moshe is going to die. Like he knew, his, he knew that his, his end is coming. And he did not delay the war. Hashem didn't say go to war tomorrow. He didn't say go to war tomorrow. He said go to war with these Midianites because they caused many of the uh, Bnei Israel to, uh, to sin. And if they cause Bnei Israel to sin, the, uh, the person that causes another person to sin is worse than the sinner himself. So you have to go take revenge against them. Go take revenge against them and go kill all of them. Don't have any mercy. But you should know that after you finish this war, this is going to be your last war. It's going to be your last war. In last week's parasha, we went over this uh, uh, where Moshe Rabbeinu did not delay and it continues in the Sefer Dvarim, did not delay. He went to war right away. Amisa did not want to do it because they knew that Moshe is going to die as soon as the war is finished. But Moshe Rabbeinu tells him, yeah, this is what happened. And the reason why, the reason why I am not going to be able to uh, go into Eretz Yisrael is your fault. He tells Am Yisrael to their face, it's your fault, I'm not able. You made Hashem angry. He got angry at me because of you. He specifically says, because of you. Not uh, something, no, because of you. Because of you, you did something, you got me angry. I'm not going to Eretz Yisrael. He's punishing me because of you. But still, even though he's losing his most prized possession of what he wanted his whole life, he wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, it does not change his relationship with Am Yisrael. Of course, it does not change his relationship with Hashem. And he fulfills the mitzvah as soon as possible. So, after this Akedah, this amazing Akedah, in our tefillah, in our sidu, it continues into another really interesting section. We're here, we're asking Hashem, now that we have reminded you of this Akedah, 
reminded you of this akedah, this this monumental event that began the nation of Israel. This monumental midah character trait, where a human being was willing to sacrifice everything for you. Now, Avram Avinu already sacrificed himself before. When he was young and Nimrod asked him, you will either you know, pray to me, bow to me, even if you don't mean it, just to show everybody else. I know you don't mean it, I know. But listen, you can't not do it because then it's going to look bad for me. So just say you believe I'm God and uh, then I'll let you go. Go do what you, what you want. Avram says, what God? Last week you had a backache. Two weeks ago I heard you had diarrhea. This week yeah, you're coughing a little bit. Well, what, what God? You're nothing. He goes, yeah, yeah, I understand. Between you and me, I know. I understand. But still, you got to do it. Why? Because if not, I'm going to kill you. Because you're ruining my whole company. You're ruining my whole business. The whole, the whole Ponzi scheme is based on me being God. He says, I'm not willing to do it. Not willing to, I'm going to throw you in the fire. Throw me in the fire. He jumped into the fire. Avraham Avinu jumped into the fire. But that wasn't enough. Why? Sacrificing yourself could be a, more, a moment of strength. Some of the Kohanim did it at the time of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Some of the major tzaddikim in history have done it throughout all of history, martyring themselves. Even during uh, the Holocaust, during the pogroms, the Inquisitions, as always, Baruch Hashem, we've always had tzaddikim in every generation that loved Hashem to such an extent they were willing to sacrifice their life. Some men, some women... A very famous story about uh, a, uh, in Morocco about Sulika. Sulika Tzadika, they asked her to, uh, they commanded her to marry the king, the king of Morocco. She said, not interested. She said, well, it's not, an, it's not a question. You're pretty, he likes you, you're going to marry him. Not going to marry him. We're not going to marry him. We're going to kill you. Okay, kill me. Why, you're 14 years old. Why, you're, you're just, you have your whole life ahead of you. What's, what's the problem? You're marrying the king. He has a lot of money. You don't have to like him. You don't have to. No one says you have to love him. You should marry him. You can pretend. You can be uh, Anusa. What can you do? It's against your, against your will. Against your will. You don't have to like him. No one says write him love letters every day. Just marry the guy. No. Little girl. Little baby. Mama's baby. Mama's baby. No. Why? He's not Jewish. What do you care he's not Jewish? Your life is worth it? Yes. So they decided, the king decided to make Sulika an example and he said, tie her to the tail of the horse. Tie her hair, her long, beautiful hair, to the tail of the horses and drag her all over the city. Drag her all over the city so everyone sees this is what happens when you go against the king. King of Morocco. The entire Keilah, the Jewish congregation, religious people, came to her and said, Sulika, you don't have to do it. It's okay. You don't have to kill yourself for this. You're Anusa. You, you, don't, you don't have to do it. You could just tell him, listen, it's fine. I'll marry you. You're the king. You're Anusa. Miskena. We'll find you in a day. We'll find you a leniency because of this, because of that. You don't have to sacrifice your life for this. She says, no. I'm going to die for this. No problem. No questions asked. No questions asked. Uh, but he says going to marry a guy. No questions asked. Well, you're insane. But even the, some, they, some, the story says that even some people that perhaps were even rabbis came to her. Said, no, you don't have to do this. We'll find it. She was not having it. 
and not only she's not having it, but they're telling her, they're proposing to her that she's going to have the most vicious death ever. Not only full of pain, physical pain, but full of embarrassment. Little girl is full of so much holiness, she doesn't see straight. She doesn't see the risk, the pain, the sorrow. I have pain right now just thinking about the story. And that's what happens. They tie her. They ask her, do you have any requests? She says, yes. I need you to get me some needles, some uh, bobby pins, different pins. That's your wish? That's your last wish? Yes, that's all I want. I want bobby pins. Give me 10, 20 bobby pins. Okay, what is she going to start sewing on the horse? What's happening here? They don't know what's going on. They're asking this little girl. Maybe she lost her mind. Who knows? So they they give the girl the pins and they see this holy woman take the pins, put them through her dress and through her own skin of her legs to make sure that when they drag her on the horse, the, the dress never ever even goes up to the knee. Forget about going up all the way to the knee. Then look at the knee. Chas v'shalom, look at the knee. Think about this. Between me and you. You're about to die. What do you care about modesty right now? You really care about modesty right now? You're going to die in 10 minutes. That's the difference between a holy person and the rest. She puts the pins, blood gushing everywhere, to her skin. From the back to the front to everything to make sure no one will see a piece of skin. No one will even see the sock. Nothing. And such the story goes, they continue to, they, they start dragging her through the city. Hashem Yerachem. After a few minutes, she screams, stop. The king thinks he's enjoying this. Vicious king that he is. And he says, uh, oh, maybe she's giving up. Maybe she, uh, you know, she's not dead yet. She's given up. She felt enough pain, enough embarrassment, enough. So they stopped the horse. So oh, you give up? He goes, no, no, hold on a second. One second. She takes the pins and she puts them deeper in her skin. Like if it wasn't enough the first time, wasn't enough the first time. She says, oh, no, no, I felt through all the pain, the agony and everything else. She's not feeling the pain. What is she feeling? Chas <laughs> v'shalom. Anyone will see the leg of a Jewish woman. Chas v'shalom, the leg. The leg. We're not talking about anything. The leg. When a person has fire in them, fire of Kedusha, they don't see straight. They don't see things that we call rational. They don't see things that we call logical. They don't try to make sense of everything. All they see, Hashem. That's it. That's why Sulika is known till this day, hundreds of years later. And most people don't even know how to spell our name. Little teenager, baby, made a name for herself. The entire nation did tshuva after seeing this story. She says, if this little girl Cared so much about cared so much about Hashem that she even protected our modesty when she didn't really have to. She was ptuah. She was uh, she didn't have to do it. She cared so much about Hashem, but Kvod Hashem at that time 
In our generation, that means all of us have to do tshuva. And that's why she is eternal and so is her story. Hashem expects each and every single one of us to also be like Sulika. That's why the story of Avraham Avinu is written in the Torah. That's why it's not in some Midrash or it's hidden. There's many, many stories that are not told in the Torah. For example, if you look at the Midrash Me'am Loez, or you look at Midrash Rabbah, you look at the Zohar, you look at different books that talk about the Shvatim, the 12 tribes, and their wars that they went to, they went to wars with the different nations. The description of the, of the Shvatim is superheroes. Mamash, really, really fast. They jumped on top of buildings in one shot. You know, they were able to kill thousands in a second. Uh, Yudah, Yudah killed 30,000 people in one day. One person, one day, killed 30,000 people. He screamed, he screamed one time, it was like a lion roar, and entire walls, buildings collapsed with people on them. It's a superheroes, but you don't see it in the Pshat. You don't see it in the, in the written Torah. You see it in the Midrashim. Why? Because Hashem is not expecting you to be like Yehuda. I would love to be Yehuda, by the way, just between us. If I scream, buildings collapse, I think more people are going to show up to the lecture that way. Next, Guru. Can. Not knives, the copper. Copper would come out of his body. But anyway, but the thing is, what we see is the midah that Avraham Avinu had on the other hand, the Mesirut Nefesh, maybe not to the extent of sacrificing our children, Shalom, but Mesirut Nefesh, that he does expect from us. And that's why it's written time and time again, whether it's Avraham Avinu or it's Yitzchak, or Yaakov, or Moshe Rabbeinu, or David, all of the majors, all of them, those, their whole life was full of Mesirut Nefesh. That we are expecting. That's why we repeat these events, these stories daily in the beginning of our tefillah. But then after we go over this tefillah, we go into another interesting section, which is, says, Yiratzon Milfanecha, Hashem Elokeinu, may be your will, Hashem our God, and the God of our forefathers, that you be filled with mercy towards us. And so, in your great mercy, remember us in the, uh, for the sake of the binding of Yitzchak Avinu, that our, our, our forefather Avram, peace be upon him, you know, put his son as uh, because of this merit. But if you go into the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, they say, what about Akidat Yitzchak? We still have any of this merit left? He said, no, the merit is finished. The merit, the schut avot of Akedat Yitzhak is finished. We spent it already. When? At the time of the Beit HaMikdash. There's a machloket of exactly the time which pasuk in the Tanakh says, oh, it ended exactly at the time of Jeremiah, at the time of Isaiah, at the time of one of the other prophets. Exactly which time? Bottom line is, everyone agrees, it's spent already. It's gone. Finished. There's no more schut avot. There's no more uh, Akedat Yitzhak. So, so why we mention it? Not only we mention it, we mention the beginning of the prayer. Why? He says, because there's still the significance of the memory of it. There's still the promise. We don't have the actual schut, the merit of the avot. We can't use it anymore. We spent it already because of all of our sins. But there's still the promise. There's still a deal. There's still something there that we still want to remind Hashem that it exists. It's like, you know, what happens is, like, for example, I remember when we were in a business and I had some clients that were with me for a long time. Now, in the beginning of my career, I made a lot of people a lot of money. 
tons and tons of money. We buy a stock at four dollars. It went to thirty. You know, mamash, unbelievable. A lot of lot of money. Millions and millions of dollars were made. People that would start a small account became a big account, and so on and so forth. But then we hit a wall. We hit a wall. All the gold started turning into ashes. But not right away. It started turning a little bit. And then people wanted to leave. People wanted to leave. Like, hey, listen, okay, so you turned 100,000 to uh, 2 million. Great, good job. Thank you very much. But now it's back to a million. Down 50%. You're not down 50%. You're down from where you were, but you're still up 200% from where you started, 500% where you started. No, 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 I'm down 50%. Okay, listen, don't you remember I made you the money in the beginning? And that's what, schutavot. I used schutavot. Why, don't you remember you started with this and I brought you this? If I did it before, maybe I can do it again. And many people would continue staying around because of what happened in the beginning. Le'avdil. That's what we're doing with Hashem. Yeah, it's really, we lost. But don't you remember what happened with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Hashem, remember? Okay, Besedo. So why? Why do we need him to remember? Why? You continue with this prayer and it says, May you cancel all of the decrees which are harsh, that are against us. And make us worthy to do complete tshuva before you. And save us from our own evil inclination and from any sin and iniquity and lengthen our days with goodness and our years with pleasantness. We start every day asking Hashem to help us to what? Do tshuva. What about if you've been religious your whole life? Don't you just skip this prayer? No. Every single Jew has to pray every day to do tshuva. Even if he's the stipler. Even if he's Moshe Rabbeinu. Even if he's Rav Kanievsky. Even if he's the Labavitch Rebbe. Even if he's the Chafetz Chaim. Every Jew, the more he knows, the more he realizes how much is expected of him to do tshuva. And that's why we start, we begin our prayer... We begin our prayer with pleading and begging Hashem to help us do tshuva. Please help us do tshuva. So here we see that tshuva is not some idea. This is a foundation of our tefillah. It's our foundation of our Torah. It's a foundation of Judaism. But yet you ask most people about tshuva. If they're in the secular world, they have no idea what you want from them. They're like, what, you want me to start wearing black and white? What do you care about my clothes? What, you want me to work less? How am I going to give tzedakah if I work less? You want, me to work, uh, you want me to work on Shabbat? If I don't work on Shabbat, I'm not going to make as much money. If I don't make as much money, who's going to buy the Sefer Torah? Who's going to buy a new Beknesset? Who's going to give money to the little Chabad guys giving a lane tefillin everywhere? Well, what's going to happen? I have to work on Shabbat. I sell cars on Shabbat. That's the mentality of a secular person. Like, what do you want for my life? You go to the religious people, and you tell them, listen, you got to do tshuva. What tshuva? I'm religious. I'm from, from birth. I'm more religious than you. What are you talking about? I'm more religious than you. I had somebody, I sent a video, uh, we sent a video um, yesterday about a clip that we made in here a few weeks ago about wasting seed, how step by step Instructions of how to stop wasting seed. And, Baruch Hashem, it got good feedback. A lot of people liked it. A lot of people watched it. And uh, one of the people didn't watch it. But he sent me a message. 
Say, listen, I think you're, I'm not sure, maybe you're Baal Tshuva, maybe not, but I'm from from birth, he tells me. I don't know why that matters, but he started the conversation that way. And he tells me, listen, I'm from from birth, I'm religious my whole life. Born with a keeper and everything. Tefillin, I think, were imprinted, everything, Baal Hashem, from from birth. Okay, fine. And he says to me, but in today's age, already I know this is going south. Why? Anytime you start a Torah conversation in today's age, that means you are starting your rationale for who? Not for yourself, for your Yetzirah. You're already arguing for the Yetzirah. You became a lawyer for the Yetzirah. Why? In today's age, how do you really expect, and he doesn't mean harm by it. He's a nice guy. I gave him some information. Hopefully he, he reads it and, and watches and so on. But he asked the way he asked the question, the way the Yetzirah manipulated him to ask the question. He says, in today's age, with people walking around the way they walk around. And if a guy is trying to get married, but he can't find a kala, for whatever reason or another, and he's not married, and everyone's half naked, or completely naked, uh, how do you expect someone to watch their breed? Do you think? Like I made this rule. Like when Hashem wrote, okay, guys, Shabbat, okay, Moshe, okay, Shabbat, okay, Shabbat, he wrote, Yaron, 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 come, Yaron. You know, we're talking about, come a breed. Yaron, you okay with, with come? Like he asked me, but, but your own department. Hey, come. Yaron, we're going to ask you. Like everybody else. Oh, this is a joke. Like what, what do they think? I, I made these rules? So here's the problem, Abutai. There is no in this age. There's no in this age. Is this relevant? Is this not relevant? As soon as the conversation starts that way, whether that conversation is by a friend of yours or that conversation is in your own mind, know for sure it's Yetzirah. But that is one of the biggest and most obvious Yetzirahs out there in the world, but unfortunately, Gdolim Vektanim Anoflimbo. There are both big and small people that are falling for this Yetzirah. Of what about today? Is it really still relevant today? This is the issue that we have of how many rabbis unfortunately want to say that every secular person is a Tinok Shanishba. It's a kidnapped baby that if they don't know mitzvot, they don't know Torah, they don't know anything, it's okay. Hashem will judge them accordingly and they're still going to be going to Gan Eden with Moshe Rabbeinu and Rabbi Akiva and all the people that are breaking their back to fulfill the will of Hashem, the guy that's not doing anything, and in fact doing the opposite, he's also going to go to Gan Eden. Why? Because uh, he donated a hundred bucks once in a while to some campaign. And because they misread what the Lubavitcher Rebbe says or the, uh, um, the uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said, or even what the Chazon Yish said. They miss manipulating what he said. It's not true what they say, what, what they say. but either way, the point is, it's, this is not the time or place to talk about it. This is a mistake. It's a mistake that is being made by many people. And this is the justification for the speakers, the vast majority of speakers, that when they come and they speak to the people, they tell them things like, you should have emunah, you should have bitachon, you should be generous, you should be nice to your wife, 
And if you do all these things, your life is going to be tooting. Your life is going to be like a uh, strawberries. Your life is going to be sweet. If you uh, have a munayin Hashem that everything is good, it'll be good. If you have kavod for your wife when you have shlom bayit, and uh, you talk to Hashem in the middle of some forest, even though there's ticks there, talk to Him there. And they skip. All those things are fine to say. There's nothing really wrong with anything I just said. What's wrong is when that's the foundation of the sicha. When that's the foundation of the conversation, and you skip, by the way, if this, all of what I'm saying is assuming you're keeping all of the mitzvot. All of what I'm saying, the emunah, the bitachon, the shlombayit, all of that is assuming that you keep Shabbat, you keep Tarat Mishpacha, you keep kosher, you watch your eyes, you watch your breath, you keep everything. It's not, this is it. This is not, we didn't turn Judaism into Christianity where you, all you have to do is be nice to your wife, donate some money, and, uh, and, and uh, have belief that uh, God runs the world. Thank you. Meaning, you could say all those things, but don't make that into the ikal, into the, the most critical part of the lecture. The problem is, every lecture you watch, almost every single one of them, this is, this is exactly what's being repeated time and time again. You should be nice, you should be good, you should be a good person, you should tell people to believe in Hashem. Okay, well, do you believe in Hashem? Yeah, yeah, I believe in Hashem. Okay, so how can we drive on Shabbat? Ah, I'm not at that level to keep Shabbat. There's no level. It's the minimum requirement to be a Jew, is to keep Shabbat. How come you still eat at non-kosher places? I need it for business. You know, in today's age, you know, in today's age, oh, how come your skirt is barely covering your knee? Barely covering your thigh sometimes. How come? You know, in today's age, everyone walks around with no clothes on. So how come your wig is uh, all reaching the floor? Oh, you know, in today's age, in today's age, you know, if you're, if, if, if if the wife is not pretty, then the husband looks at someone else. By the way, the husband's looking at someone else anyway. With the wig, without the wig. Why? Because he knows everybody is looking at his wife too. If she's wearing that wig that she looks like a runway model, what, what do you think happens in the street? What do you think Steve and Wilbur and, 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 and Josh and uh, Carlos and, all, and, and Marcos and all the people in the street... What do you think they're looking at? What do you think they're looking at the wall? Oh, no, no, the, the, the Rabbanit is here. Let's look at the wall. What do you think they're looking at? They're looking at us. Like, wow, look at these Jewish people. They look better than the Goyim. Why? Is it, the hair is always made. They don't know it's a wig. If it's a wig, another wig doesn't make a difference. Wow, look at the Rabbanit. She's looking good. Wow. So her husband, Miskin, he says, look, everybody's looking at my wife, including sometimes the rabbis, including the Keilah, including all the religious people, so-called religious people. Okay, sharing is caring. I let them look at mine. I'm going to look at theirs. So any wife that's foolish enough to believe that just because she is pretty for her husband, so he doesn't look somewhere else, it's complete nonsense. This is 100% Yetzirah. It's complete nonsense. Every single woman, the Baruch Hashem has seen shiurim about how you're not allowed to wear a wig because of idolatry. Forget about whether it's Minag Ashkenaz or Sephardi or the Poskia. That's never been an argument. The argument is, is that if you're wearing a real hair wig, it's coming from idolatry. Bottom line. Any woman that took that into our heart, realized there's a serious problem, took off the wig, started wearing a mitpachat, 
And then little by little, as the actions led to the heart changes. The actions, instead of the... First, it was a little bit of emotional trauma, because she realized, oh, I have Abu Dazara in my head. Oh, maybe that's why my son didn't get married. Oh, maybe that's why I'm sick. Oh, maybe that's why there's no panasah. Oh, maybe that's why my kids don't want to learn Torah. It's starting to add up. Okay, I have Abu Dazara in the house. Where? On top of the mother of the house. So, it's a problem. So, the women that have taken it to heart... It's hard. Why? Because now she's putting a mitpachat. She doesn't really like the way it looks. But then you see, they take it, they put the mitpachat, they make the mesirut nefesh, no less than Avram Avinu, 4,000 years ago, no less. Because to them it was everything. That was their yofi, that was their beauty. They make the mesirut nefesh, and all of a sudden their heart changes, and it starts making sense to them. Like, how could I ever wear a wig? Like, of course, look at all these other... They start seeing what they haven't seen for 20 years. Nothing changed, really. Just their perception changed. Why? Because now they're saying, wait a minute, I'm not wearing a mitpachat. So they look at all the people that are wearing wigs, like, wait a minute, look how attractive she is with this wig. Of course, it doesn't look like a wig. It looks like a real hair. Look at this whenever he's looking at her. Look at that whenever he's looking at her. Look. They become more zealous about it, and they become the biggest advocates for other women to do tshuva. And that's why the Torah says, just like Nashim Tzadkaniyot, righteous women, helped us have the merit to take us out of Egypt, righteous women will help us bring the Mashiach. So here we see that actions lead to emotional changes. But nonetheless, all of these actions, not enough people are doing them. Why? Because not enough people are telling people they should do them. Not enough people are telling people that you should have to keep Shabbat and kosher and tarat mishpacha and modesty and so on and so forth. Because they believe that if you do it in a different way, in a nicer way, you just sell Judaism as if it's a uh, application. Sell Judaism like it's Coca-Cola. Sell Judaism like it's a car. That it's fun and it's exciting and you should be part of it, and you should do it, that's going to get more people to do tshuva. So yeah, I have a question. If this is, if this theoretically, this is, this is the theory that the 99.9% of speakers in the world are using, and that's why there are literally very, very few, maybe a handful in the English language, and a few more in Hebrew, and a few more in, uh, in, uh, in, in Russian and other languages, but... You could literally count the amount of real speakers in the world in just a few hands. It's very few. Which means that the vast majority of people that are filling up stadiums, every day I get uh, these, uh, these uh, invitations of how to these events. Oh yeah, we're going to fill up the Yankee Stadium full of Jews. Wow, who's what? Mashiach's coming? No, uh, these line of rabbis are coming. I'm like, Why are so many people showing up? What's the big deal? Okay, so what, what is he saying? What are these people saying? What's this such a big deal that he's saying that there's so many people coming to see them? Oh, we just had this event. Oh, we have 2,000 people show up to the event. Why? Why did 2,000 people stop their life to go swat? Like, what do they say? Like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they're not saying anything good. I'm just saying, like, what's the big deal? Is, are they saying some chidushim? Are they making uh, changing lives? Uh, wow, what's happening? I, I'm aware it, it, it drives me crazy sometimes. Like, why? So, but you see that the vast majority, it's, 
that are filling up stadiums are telling people everything's okay. Now I have a question. I have a question for you. Maybe you could help me. I have a question for them. Maybe they could help me. You could send me an email. Add it to the 300 a day. If everything is so good, if everything is so wonderful, and like what you said earlier before the shiur, that maybe there's an opinion out there by some people that the worst is behind us, Gogu Magogo already happened, even though no real Pasek or real rabbi ever said it, but some people say it because people like this world too much. If the world's worst is behind us and everything is good and everything is wonderful, then why is the vast majority of Am Yisrael not even Shomer Shabbat? Not even Shomer basic of mitzvot. We're talking about between 70 to 80% of Am Yisrael did not keep even the foundational mitzvah of Shabbat. Which according to Hashem, according to His Torah, without Shabbat, there is no Judaism. There is no connection to Hashem. So if everything is so wonderful, and our entire life is tutim, our entire life is, 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 is just uh, strawberries, and everything is wonderful, then how come there's so many people not keeping anything? Like, technically, if everything was so wonderful, and all of the, strat- the strategy that everything is wonderful should change that. Change it. I mean that you know if you know the people there should be communities being built. There's so many. If there's let's say for example, for every one person that speaks the truth, there's two thousand that say that everything is wonderful. So that means that there should be a lot of people doing a lot more tshuva than what's happening. It should be it should be going from ninety percent don't keep Shabbat to eighty percent to seventy percent to sixty percent in three four five years from now it should be all of Am Yisrael are. Like the generation of Shlomo Melech. But it's the opposite. Why? If that's not enough, if that's not enough of a proof, then if everything is so wonderful, then why is Hashem preparing another Hitler right now? In Florida, just yesterday, there was a criminal caught that his intention, a 17-year-old, 72-year-old psychopath Nazi, decided that he doesn't like Jewish people. He hates Jewish people to such an extent that he wants to kill all of them. And he planned to burn down an entire building that he lived in with a plan of attack of filling up all types of gasoline through the garbage system and then he bought some fans to make sure that the the fire the wind of the you know it makes the fire stay in the building and not out of the building Mamash, a very uh very uh complicated plan of attack something he really thought of which is actually a good thing that he got caught because now he could be tried for murder or first degree, meaning he would go to jail and never end, it would never finish. But the point is that this actually happened yesterday. Now, everyone thought that Hitler died seven years ago. So, then I ask another question. This is not the only Hitler. You see a lot of these protests that are against Israel. There's always a bunch of Hitlers there. 
There's always a bunch of Hitlers there, a bunch of anti-Semites, a bunch of Nazis there. Okay, that's not enough. In India, just a few months ago, they published an article that made what I thought, Mesiyat Vishmaya, was true, a fact. If you remember about six months ago, I brought you a proof against the Whigs that shows that everybody that donates their hair, part of the donation is that they take this red paint and they draw a swastika on the bald head. Now, people say, no, but the swastika for India is a sign of peace. It's a sign of peace. It's a, it's a Buddha and Shmuda and all this stuff. Okay. Well, many Indians don't agree with you. Why? Because they wrote an article and they published it this way. Why Hitler is not a dirty word in India is the title of the article. From coffee mugs to laptop cases to ice cream, to artwork, everything sells in the Fuhrer's name in India. And this article talks about how the Mein Kampf has been the best seller in India for many years, and that people love Hitler in India, a nation of over a billion people. They idolize him, they think he's fantastic, he's a fantastic leader, they got a bad name. And they sell his products on Amazon, such as coffee mugs, uh, posters, laptop casings, motorcycle helmets, mouse pads, all types of things. And they have quotes of Hitler, like, to conquer a nation, first disarm its citizens on a mouse pad. People have license plates, license plates with Hitler. And I'm not talking about white people. I'm talking about Indian people. The same ones that are putting the swastika that everyone says is a peace sign. This one, Rabotai Karim, it's not a secret. If you go to India, they like Hitler. There's a nation of over a billion people that likes Hitler. That's not enough. Amazon had a sale. Yesterday, Amazon sends emails to all of its members and uh, they have sales. They have specials. They have specials. Special deals where it's a timely, you know, there's a, a certain amount allotted product. Let's say, I don't know, there's a million uh, laptops or uh, 500,000 desks or whatever it is. For a special price, you know, within a specific time. They have to buy it within 24 hours or whatever it is. So they had a special for Mein Kampf. Adolf Hitler's book. Yesterday. They had a special 54% off. And literally within a few hours, if not less, 76% of all the books were sold out. 76%. 76% was sold out. And this, we didn't, obviously we didn't follow it until the end of the, of, the, of the auction. There's still four hours left, four hours and 20 minutes left. But 76% of the books were sold. Mein Kampf. 
the, the worst book in history after the New Testament, for the Jews meaning, 76% was sold in minutes. So, if everything is so good, Rabotai, why is Hashem preparing Hitler? Again, why? It's not theoretical. It's not theoretical. Why is Hashem preparing Gog? If everything is so wonderful. These are questions we have to ask ourselves. The answer is, in my opinion, the answer is because we're not doing Kiruv. The answer is because we're not doing what Hashem is expecting us to do. When you say, you're fulfilling the mitzvah out of the 613 biblical mitzvot in the Torah, of loving your brother, this is actually a commandment that you are testifying to eat, to begin your prayer with. In the beginning of your prayer, there's a small print that you're supposed to read. Beginning of your siddur, before you start praying, it says, Behold, I accept upon myself the positive commandment of you shall love your fellow man as yourself. This is how you start your prayer every single morning. Before the Akedat Yitzhak even. Before everything. So how, how are you going to love? I'm going to love my neighbor as much as myself. How? By giving him a ride. Why are you going to love him? The very least, the very least you should do is that if you see a train is about to hit him, you tell him, move. If you see a train about to hit him, and you don't say move, it's, it's fair to say you don't really love him. Now, when a person does not keep Shabbat, does not keep Tarat Mishpacha, does not keep kosher, does not keep an honest business, does not watch his mouth, does not watch his bleat, he has not only a train coming at him. It's not a train. A train is an understatement. He has an atomic bomb coming at him. Over and over again. Because he's disconnected from the Makom. He's disconnected from the Omnipresent. He's disconnected from Hashem Barach. He has no idea what's happening here. So here this Mishnah in Avot says, Anyone that influences the public to do tshuva, there's no sin shall come to him. But anyone that influences the public to go against Hashem, to make sins, he will not be given the means to repent. So the first thing we have to identify here is how do, I, how do we know which one is, which one isn't? It's very simple. I thought about this today and I believe it's true because there's proof. Good speakers people that speak well, people that speak well, the Tony Robbins of the world, the Zig Ziglar's of the world, the fakers of the world, they can fill up stadiums. They can fill up stadiums. They can fill up stadiums with 5, 10, 20,000 people, no problem. Hashem gave them a talent, Hashem gave them a gift, 
and they use it, not like Hashem wants them to do it, but nonetheless they could use it and they have power in their speech. They can influence people. And the people that are good speakers, they can influence people to do certain things, but those things won't last. Most of the people that go to these motivational speakers' speech, they get a little bit of a jolt in their life. They get a little bit of excitement, maybe to go start making some more sales, maybe to go start going on a diet, maybe go start exercising, maybe go start doing something. But that change will not last. It's not a lasting change unless they constantly go back to the source. Unless they constantly go back to the event again and again and again and again every few months, and then they just have to constantly go back. And even so, the change is limited. It's one thing. They don't change their life. They just change one habit. So you'll notice that the people that are good speakers, they can get people to come. They can get people to listen to them, to change a specific event. But that's it. The impact is limited. Speakers of truth, on the other hand, build communities. Speakers of truth don't just get a person to change one thing. They get a person to change their life. They get a person to change their family's life. They get a community to change their life. One of the things that motivates me to not quit because it's so difficult, so difficult that you're constantly battling 24 hours a day. When you're sleeping, you're battling. When you're awake, you're battling. And it's almost like you feel like you're grinding water sometimes until Hashem has mercy on you and He sends you a good note from one of the new Baalet Shuvah you never heard of from Montana, from Oregon, from California, from New York, from Florida even, that you never even knew you watched your lectures, you never knew she watched your lectures, you never knew they existed. But they send you a letter, oh, thank you very much, you changed my life, I've been watching you for six months, about Hashem, got mad, all the wonderful things. You have like a little Rabbi Akiva, a little uh, Sarai Menu, somewhere in the world, you never knew, it's, you started, you ignited the fire. And you need this. Why? Because there's constantly Korachs, coming in front of you. There's constantly people that are going against you and it drives you crazy. You see, wait a minute, I, I work so hard on this one, I work so hard on that one, and this guy is uh, this. This guy is tough. But there's one thing that motivates me. After we moved to the United States from Israel, we moved to a place called Staten Island. Staten Island Today is obviously very different than what it was 30 years ago. But Staten Island wasn't exactly the most religious community in the world. A lot of Jews, a lot of Israelis moved there in the early 1990s, late 80s. But predominantly were secular people. So most of Staten Island, even to this day, a lot of them are secular. Some go to the traditional, they go to synagogue, they go you know, for a few times a year, maybe even every day sometimes. But vast majority, not the most religious people in the world, with the exception of one community. There's one community that as a secular person, you don't go there. Secular person, you don't go there. Why? Everything's black. 
Why is it black? It's all the Haredim. It's all the really, re- like really religious people. Like religious, really, like serious, like it's Bnei Brak. Bnei Brak, Kodesh, Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabbi Akiva, all the friends, all Tanaim, everyone's there. God, every family, little Tzadikim walking around. So a secular person, you find yourself, what am I doing here? Secular person, what, what am I doing here? This is a place you don't go to. It's called Willowbrook. So I know, growing up, we heard of this place, but we never went. Why? It's not for us. We were, we were secular. We were, what was the fire? One of the Gdolei Ado started the yeshiva over there of uh, Moshe Feinstein's son, I believe, or his grandson. Has a yeshiva there, kolel there, whole bet midrash. But what was the, one of the big fires that built that community? Built the community. I'm not talking about, you know, built a little beknesset. That today it seems like everybody with a little bit of money builds a beknesset even though they don't know what Shabbat is. Talk about somebody who built a community. People changed their lives. People stopped being secular. Stopped being oivim of Hashem, the enemies of Hashem. Talk about community. Who? Rav Nisim Yagen, Allah Shalom. Rav Nisim Yagen, Allah Shalom. Mamash, few people have already told me he was the fire that built the community. Now, was Rav Nisim Yagen one of these people that tells you you're a tzaddik? Not exactly. Was Rav Nisim again one of these people that spoke softly? Not exactly. Rav Nisim was such fire, such fire, that even if you don't understand Hebrew, he spoke Hebrew. He has, I think, one or two lectures in English, because he lived in America for many years, but 99.9% of his lectures, hundreds and hundreds of lectures were in Hebrew, screaming at the top of his lungs, every lecture. Even if you don't understand Hebrew, you do tshuva. You don't have to understand Hebrew. You just listen to the fire, convert, do tshuva, everything. That's the fire. It came from the heart. Talmit chacham, there's no, no questions asked. But the fire that came from that heart built the communities. Rav Mizrahi Sheikhyeh, Baruch Hashem, has many, many enemies. But even more so lovers. Why? I remember I did an event in New York a few years ago for Tisha B'Av. And the place I was staying at, the family that hosted me and then the uh, shul, Bet Gabriel shul over there, more than a few people told me, because I told part of my story was connected to Rav Mizrahi and how he helped us and with the movie Torah and Science and the questions we had and so on and so forth. Baruch Hashem, to this day we talk on a regular basis and we help each other. He's been Baruch Hashem a uh, very key part of our day-to-day lives for the last several years. But you won't know it because he'll never say it. But other people do. When I was in that community, more than one, two or three people told me, because you see, Baruch Hashem, the, the Bukharian community in Queens, Baruch Hashem is the, big, is the biggest Bukharian community in the world. It's in Queens. They said, you know, every corner that has religious people in this entire community, Rabbi Mizrahi has something to do with it. Rabbi Mizrahi, Rabbi Yosef Mizrahi built this. Yes, of course there was other rabbis, and of course there was other shuls, and of course there was other things, but it wasn't this until he did it. Torah Anytime. TorahAnytime.com, the most uh, famous 
religious, uh, English-speaking religious website out there, has 500 plus speakers, and so on and so forth. Who has Torah anytime? It's his students. He started, uh, Rav Mizrahi started Torah anytime. He's the first speaker. And the two guys that started it are his students. They did tshuva to him. There would be no Torah anytime from the Bukharian community, from that queen's community. Who started it? Who, start, who changed the life to such an extent to take the fire from him, to put it into another person, to just stop their lives and go start a Torah website? Why? What are you kidding? You just did Shuvah last week. What are you doing a Torah website for? It's fire. So you see, Rabotai, that when someone has, when someone has the truth, they don't change a life. They change a community. When I went to Arizona, Arizona, it's Mamash, feels like it's the end of the world, right next to Gainom, it's so hot over there. I went to a community over there in Arizona, Mamash, really wonderful people. We had an event, Shabbaton over there, maybe a year or two ago, whenever it was. The guy that gave me a ride to the airport, he says, you know, one of the big things that built this community, that started the fire, I said, well, Rabbi Mizrahi? He goes, yeah, now, it's now. He comes in and so on. He goes, no, before that even. Before. Before Rabbi Mizrahi. He goes, well, what started? What was that, uh, the, 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 the actual flag that started? Rabbi Mizrahi again. What do you mean? How? It's at the end of the world. He lived here. He lived there. What is he doing in Arizona? That's a Mezakeh Rabin. Rabbi Galinsky, Allah Shalom was one of these holy speakers that had enough fire in him for the entire world. He was this little, tiny, tiny little person. When he would give a lecture, he would stand on top of the table. You read his bio, you cry on every page. Why? I'll buy we could be like him in one page. Not the whole book, just one page of his life. How much suffering he went to with a smile. Rav Galinsky, Allah Shalom, one time somebody told him, listen, if you come give us a speech here at this uh, Alvaya, there's uh, somebody died, you come give a speech, we'll donate some money, a lot of money to your organization, to your kolel, yeshivot, and so on and so forth. Well-known speaker, very, very high demand, we know you're busy, but we really need you to come, boost us up, boost us up. Somebody just died. So now, on one hand, that's what he does. He boosts people up. He gets people to do tshuva and so on and so forth. On another hand, he obviously getting money is a wonderful thing. If you have a Kiruv organization, you have a yeshiva, you have a kolad, you need it. You don't get to a level of living on money. That's 3,000 years ago. We're a little late. You still need money. So he comes to the Alvaya and he sees all the people are not exactly the most religious people in the world. But everybody's nice and they all use the minag of the goyim, the, the non-Jewish minag of wearing black to the alvaya. That's not a Jewish custom, by the way. Wearing black to a, to, a, to a funeral is not a Jewish custom. It's the goyim. But people are wearing black, and they all carry flowers. And they bring flowers, and there's flowers, and flowers, and they're black, and some people are crying, and flowers. It's sad. And then you have this little fire. It's about to speak. Of Galinsky says, I was invited here to speak on the behalf of the people. 
people that have lost. But I decided that now I actually have to speak on behalf of the dead person. He said, if there's no neshama, the neshama left, there's no neshama, person died, there's no neshama, why are you giving him flowers? What are the flowers going to do? Why did every one of you bring flowers? If there's no neshama, what's the, put the flowers back in the garden. If there is a neshama, what's he going to do with your flowers anyway? If there's really a neshama, he's sitting over here, he told me, he's sitting over here, he told me, listen, what am I going to do with all these flowers? I need schuyot, I need mitzvot, I need Torah, I'm at the Beddin of Shamaim, and I have nothing, I'm poor, I'm broke. What are these people bringing me? Flowers? What are we going to bring? A garden to Shamaim? Hey Hashem, here's a garden. Roses? What roses? You live 60 years, you're batlan, you have nothing in your life, you didn't keep Shabbat, you didn't keep anything. What are you going to give me? Roses? That was the speech at the funeral. The Baalabite that invited him was in shock. Everyone was in shock. They weren't exactly excited about this speech. He didn't get the money. But he did get them to do tshuva. And a year later, when they had the yard site, they didn't bring flowers. They brought books and mitzvot and brachot and modesty. And this Rabotai Karim is rule number one of Kiruv. If you're doing it for money, if you're doing it for fame, if you're doing it for recognition, if you're doing it even to be liked, please pick another job. We have already too many of you. It's not going to work. All you'll become is another speaker that's very clever, that can make words rhyme, and can connect different sentences that stimulates people to do absolutely nothing other than attend your next lecture again. But as far as change their life, build a community, put on some clothes, divorce a woman they're not allowed to be with, send their kids to yeshiva despite the fact that they don't know how they're going to afford it, that, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. They're not going to change their life. Why? People don't change their life for a clever speaker. They just don't. So the rule number one is if you're already at a point that you're doing it 100% out of the goodness of your heart, out of your love for Hashem, do you simply want to fulfill the same mitzvah that you tell Hashem every day that you're going to fulfill? What? You're going to do what? Avraham Avinu did. You're going to do what? You said you're going to do. You're going to love your brother like you love yourself. After the hakamocha. How? You're going to tell him the truth. Yeah, but what if that's going to cost you uh, a business deal? Let it cost a business deal. What if it's going to cost you a lot of money? Let it cost me a lot of money. What if it's going to cost you your job? Let it cost my job. Why? My brother's about to get hit by a train. You want me to just sit here, watch him do it? Watch him get hit? So the first thing, the first reason, the first thing that you'll see from all of the real people that actually built communities, 
and still to this day are doing it. It wasn't for money. Some of them made money out of it, of course. They make a living, they build a kolel, they build a yeshiva, they send out CDs. We're not saying you uh, are going to be Hillel Azaken before you became Gdolado, living uh, with, uh, with uh, one puta per week. No, you have, you make a living. But if that's the reason you're doing it, if the only reason you're going to go is if they pay you a fee, you're part of the 99%. But that also goes for not just the public speakers. That also goes for the individuals, the you, the me, the everybody. If you're doing it, if you're trying to do Kiruv because you want to show people you're right, you want to show people that you know more, Houston, we have a problem. Because then it's coming from a bad place. It's coming from Gava. Now let me explain to you a story that gives us a little bit of an idea of loving Hashem, Retzon Hashem, Kvod Hashem, all the things we all swear that we actually do. Rabbi Zusha Napoli and his brother, Rabbi Elimelech Milejensk, took on themselves to go into the exile once. In order to take on Kaparat Avonot for the entire nation. They saw that the nation has an abundance of sins, and in order to lower the amount of sins that the nation has, they take the tzaddikim, take some on themselves, things that are above and beyond. Anyway, they went into the exile where no one knew them, and his non-Jewish mayor saw them, didn't like them, and decided to throw them into a jail. But not the jail like today that they spend seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year per person supporting. But rather a jail that was a hole in the ground where they also throw the waste in. So after they threw the two Gdolea door into this hole, Rabbi Elimelech started crying. Started hysterical crying, took it really hard. Why? He says, look, we're in this hole. It smells terrible. All the waste comes here. We're not even allowed to learn Torah. We're not even allowed to learn Torah. What is there in life if we can't learn Torah? The fact that we're in a hole, who cares? The hole, we went into the exile to suffer. But at least we can learn Torah. So we can still connect to Hashem. But now we're in a place where it smells bad. You're not allowed to learn Torah. If it smells bad, not allowed to learn Torah. Anywhere it smells bad, not allowed to learn Torah. But as he's saying this, he sees his brother, Rabbi Zusha, dancing like he's never danced before, flipping, twisting, happy as can possibly be. Now his level of happiness is, is known throughout the generations, how happy he was, despite that in our version, in our eyes, he had nothing. Less than nothing. But he was the happiest person in the world. In this particular moment, he was happier than usual. So Rabbi Elimele says to him, what are you so happy about? He says, don't you understand what's happening here? Right now we have an opportunity to fulfill one of the most rare mitzvot in the world. Mitzvah, we can't learn Torah. He says, exactly. He says, what are we? We don't want to learn Torah. We want to go in our bar. 
We want to go, what are we doing here? We went through all this for mitzvah, for Ritzon Hashem, to protect his people, for us, forever, all that stuff. What are we doing here? We don't want, we want to learn Torah. But now Hashem has put us in a situation where he says, I don't want you to learn Torah. I don't want to learn Torah. And we can fulfill it. This is a mitzvah that's rare because every other moment, even on your deathbed, you're obviously obligated to learn Torah. And we want to learn Torah. But now Hashem said, I don't want you to learn Torah. I want you to fulfill that mitzvah of not learning Torah. And this is such a rare mitzvah, how could I not be so happy? And the fact that you cried makes it even more rare. Rabbi Elimelech says, emit. What you're saying is emit. He started dancing with them. They both start dancing. The mayor hears about this. All the people are saying they're about to throw uh, waste over there. They hear a bunch of people dancing over there. They run away. Like, what's going on over here? Something's wrong with these people. They went crazy. Something has Shadim, what's happening here? They bring the mayor. The mayor says, what are you doing? Why are you so happy? He goes, well, I'm happy. We're fulfilling mitzvot. Mitzvot? No, no, no. I will not have any part of it. Get out. He throws him out of the jail. But this is someone that was so glued to Hashem. These are people that were so glued to Hashem that in the depths of hell, they were thanking Him for the opportunity. Rabotai, life is full of problems. Everyone has them. Life is full of suffering. Everyone has them. The difference between a tzaddik and a rasha is that the rasha doesn't stop complaining. Because he wants the life of the tzaddik. The tzaddik doesn't stop thanking Hashem for giving him an opportunity to learn. He uses the suffering and the pain to learn. Now Rabbi Zusha was once told a story about another chacham that was, that was visiting about how this chacham at Ruach HaKodesh. And Rabbi Zusha says, yeah, I used to have it too. He said, what do you mean you used to have it? He says, yeah, I asked Hashem to take it away. Take it away? Usually people are willing to die to have it. You ask him to take it away? He says, yes. What happened once, I told him I can't handle it anymore. Because one time, there was a person that was a gvira, was a rich person in a town, that was dying, sick, and he was dying. At the same time, there was a woman that was about to give birth, was having complications with the birth. And because I was at the Ruach HaKodesh, had the ability to know, I knew that not only they were connected, but the neshama of the rich person was supposed to go into the baby that didn't want to come out until he died. So what do I do now? If I pray for him to live, then the woman's going to die. If I pray for him to die, I pray for her to live, he's going to die. I said, Hashem, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. I can't. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I don't know how you do it. It's not my business. As it happened, the guy died and the baby came out. He says, years passed, a few years passed, and the family of the deceased rich person had this woman that had the baby clean their house. She's a maid servant that cleaned the house and fixed the house and cooked and cleaned and so on. And one day she brought her son, our three or four year old son. It was used to be the baby. Now he's a little older than the baby. 
And as soon as he comes to the house, he starts screaming at everybody. Hey, clean over here. Do this. Don't get out of my room. And he goes and he sits in the... And he goes sits in the old chair at the head of the table. Yelling at everybody, screaming at everybody. No, yeah, get out of here. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. The people wanted to kick him out. Get out of here. Who's this kid? And Rabbi Zusha was there. He says, I, I couldn't tell them. I couldn't tell them the secret that really, because they said, who is this kid? No, don't hate him. Don't hate him. Well, who is this kid? Tell us what to do. What is he, our father? And I couldn't tell him he really is. The people of the house wanted to beat this little kid up. He was annoying them. I told him, no, don't do it. Don't do it. He's like, where does this kid think he is? Your father? And I was going to I couldn't tell him. He really is. He is your father. After that, I asked Hashem, no more. I don't want to know your business. Go do what you want. I can't take it. Can't take it. Rabotai, the people that loved Hashem didn't just benefit in the next world. They benefited in this world. And one of the ways to get to such a high level is by trying to figure out what is it that Hashem wants. What does He want? Does He want people to stay goyim? Does He want people to stay mechalel Shabbat? Does He want people to just donate but avoid the rest of the Torah? Or does He want them to follow the Torah? We have to look at what works. Now, one of the beautiful things about Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, is that you get first-hand knowledge of the number one Kiruv Rabbi, the number one overall Rabbi, the number one prophet, the number one human being on earth. His perspective of what he did to get the entire nation of Israel to do tshuva. This Mishnah is also written in his name. It says, Kol ba'al yado. Moshe zachav et arabim, schut arabim talui bo. Anyone that gets the, the masses to become meritorious to do tshuva, no sin will come upon him. Moshe was meritorious and influenced the masses to become meritorious. So the merit of the masses was to his credit. This whole Mishnah, on the, the, the positive aspect of this Mishnah, uses Moshe Rabbeinu as the prime example. He is the number one Kiruv Rabbi in history. So what was his strategy? If I wanted to become Le'avdim, if I wanted to become the best basketball player in the world, I wanted to become the best basketball player in the world, I'm not going to start inventing skills. What am I going to do? I'm going to go figure out who's the best guy in the world, and ever. Who is it? LeBron James. James. Okay, so I'm going to go and try to watch some LeBron James games, and I'll try to see how he plays, and try to copy him. If I wanted to become the, uh, the best football player, I'm not going to try to invent new skills. I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel. What am I going to do? I'm going to try to see who's the best player, who's the best quarterback, who's the best running back, who's the best uh, this, who's the best receiver, and so on. And I'm going to try to learn from them. Same thing goes with all of these businessmen. I remember in the business world, I would constantly read the bios and the books written by the people that were successful, whether it be Warren Buffett or Carl Icahn or uh, uh, you know all of these major people that are successful in the business world. And these bios, these bios sell like it's free. Doesn't matter what price tag they have on them, people buy them like they're free. Why? Everyone wants to know what Tesla's secret is. Everyone wants to know 
what Steve Jobs' secret is. Everyone wants to know the uh, the former uh, Imolts' uh, secret or the, from GE or uh, or any of the guys from Intel or any of the guys from HP. All these big companies that were started by some genius. Everyone wants to know the secret of how'd you get started? How'd you do it? How'd you make your first million, your first ten, your first... What's the secret? After you have a zillion dollars, there's no secret. There's no secret about... If you, do, if you make a mistake, you make money. The mistakes you make is that you made less money. Well, you know, you have to use it. The key, the secret everyone wants to know, what would you do when you were a kid? What would you do when you were a teenager? What did you do when you first got married? What did you do when you were going broke? What did you do when you couldn't pay mortgage? What did you do then? That's what I want to know. What did you do during difficulty? Because one of the rules that your person needs to know is that whatever you think about yourself is true. Even if it's not true. Whatever you think you can do is true, even if it's not true. If you think you're a loser, you are a loser. Even if in reality Hashem created you in His image and He wants you to be the biggest, biggest winner, He wants you to be the biggest rabbi in the world, the biggest tamit chacham, the biggest uh, everything, the best. But if you think you're a loser, you are indeed a loser. If you think you can help people do tshuva, you can help people do tshuva. If you think you can't do it, then you can't do it. Why? Because your perception of yourself is going to influence your actions. If you think you can do tshuva, you can do tshuva. But if you say, nah, it's so hard. Okay, don't even try. You failed already. Why? Because you have just tattooed into your mind, it's too hard. I can't do it. So whatever you think, you're right. Even if you're wrong. So we want to know, what are these people that succeeded, what did they think? When everyone else was telling them they're wrong. When everyone else told Steve Jobs he's wrong to tell people to go uh, put a personal computer in their house or to uh, Bill Gates to tell people to get software and so on and all these stories, everyone wants to know, what did you do when everyone else told you you're crazy? What did you do then? So Le'avdi, we have the number one rabbi in history. The number one Kiruv rabbi. Number one prophet, number one everything, human being on earth, telling us, this is what I did. When everyone told me I was crazy. We have the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, you see Moshe Rabbeinu tell Am Yisrael exactly what he feels. He first starts telling them, Rabotai, Yosef Alechem Kachem Elef Pamim Vevarechem. He says, May Hashem add you a thousand times yourselves and bless you as he has spoken of you. Meaning, regardless of what we've gone through, the good, the bad, the ugly, you are the reason why I can't go to Eretz Israel. You accuse me of stealing your wives, you accuse me of stealing money, you Gave me a hard time every single minute, and so on and so forth. May Hashem bless you a thousand times yourselves, meaning you become more and more and more and more of you. Just like He has spoken. Meaning that regardless of everything that's happened, all the hard time you give me, I still love you. Starts off, I love you. 
then he starts telling them other things. He says, you shall not show favoritism in judgment, small and great alike. You shall not tremble before any man for the judgment of God. He says, first and foremost, you, the leaders, the distinguished men, if the guy is rich or he's poor, if he's righteous or he's not, if he's comes from this family or that family, Sephardi, Ashkenazi, convert, natural-born Jew, whatever he is, you are not allowed to show any favoritism. And you're also not allowed to be afraid of them. That if you don't say a certain things, they're not going to donate to you. If you don't say a certain things, they're not going to come to the lecture. If you don't say a certain things, you're uh, going to be, uh, they're going to write hate mail about you. They're going to make movies about you. You shall not tremble. You shall not tremble in front of any man. For the judgment is God's. Why? It's all, it's all in the hands of Hashem. He then continues to rebuke them for the entire book. Not just this parasha. The entire book of Deuteronomy is rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. At some point he calls them idiots, fools. Am naval velochacham, people in Parashat Azinu, despicable people that are fools. Why fools? How dare you go against the Shem? Are you crazy? What do you think he's your friend? What do you think he's one of your buddies? Don't you realize he's the hand that feeds you? Don't you realize he's the one that controls the oxygen that goes in and out of your lungs? Don't you understand that all the panasada you pray for, he's the only one that can give it to you? Don't you understand that you're not going to get married unless he says so, unless he decides? Don't you understand that the pill that you just took for a headache is only going to work if he decides that this chalk will actually cause something to happen in your body and not just remain chalk like it's supposed to be? Don't you understand these things? And this is the entire book of Deuteronomy. Rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. This, Rabotai, is coming from the number one rabbi in history. So, if someone knows that in order for them to be the best basketball player in the world, they have to follow, like he said, this LeBron James guy. In my days, it used to be Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson? Michael Jordan. Michael Jackson, somebody else, right? Sad the locals. Huh? He's white. Oh. So anyway, a, uh, in order for someone to be the best, they're going to follow this guy. So why wouldn't anybody follow Moshe Rabbeinu? If you want to be the best, uh, I think you told me a soccer player is Messi. Messi, right? You want to be a good soccer player, you're going to go follow this little Messi guy. Right? That's what you want to do. Messi, you're going to be like him. You're not going to follow somebody else. You're going to follow Messi. Because he's the best, right? In the soccer. So how come, how come no one's following Moshe Rabbeinu? Except a handful of people here and there. How come? Regardless. Regardless. So now that we understand that Moshe Rabbeinu gave an enormous amount of rebuke, we have to start finding out 
what are we allowed to say, what are we not allowed to say, how do we do it, and that's the main part of what I want to cover, even though we've gone over a lot already. Let's see what is the actual halakha. Um, you don't look back, don't look back. You look back and get that thing out of there before somebody screams on the floor. Just be quiet. I didn't, the, the whole point was to make one person do the job and you guys sit down and watch the lecture. I just don't want anyone to scream. God bless you. So the Rambam in Ilchot Deot, chapter 6, Alachan number 7, says the following. It's a mitzvah for a person who sees that his fellow Jew has sinned or is following an improper path to attempt to correct his behavior, to inform him that he's causing himself a loss by evil deeds. As it's written in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 17, Ocheach tocheach et amitecha. This, Rabotai, means this is alacha maase. This is an obligation of every single person in this room, every single person that's watching, every single person that's a Jew. It's not a nice thing to do. It's alakha. Just like keeping Shabbat is alakha. Just like keeping kosher is alakha. Just like eating pig is not allowed. If you see your fellow sinning and you don't say anything, you just ate pig. Same thing. The problem is that it's worse than pig. Why? Because if you ate pig and you found it delicious and you put cheese on it too and it was on Yom Kippur on Pesach and so on and so forth the sin dies with you. The sin dies with you. You ate. You were satiated. You were chutzpan enough to even do Birkat Amazon. But the point is, the sin died with you. You made the sin. That's it, it finished. The problem when you see another Jew making a sin, you see him driving on Shabbat, you see him going with a woman he's not allowed to go with, you see somebody that you know is a friend of yours, that she's walking around immodest, and you don't say anything, then every single time that person continues to sin, it goes into Yochishbon. Why? Because... Hashem gave you an opportunity to be His messenger. He made sure you're the one that sees this person sinning because He knows that you're the one that could also influence them. There's no mistakes in Shemaim. You saw it because you can do something about it. Maybe through saying a few words, maybe through giving a CD, maybe through inviting them to a lecture. You have to do something. Rebuke doesn't always necessarily mean you have to say something with words. It can be through actions. You could just leave a CD in their mailbox. You could send an anonymous email. 
you could send an anonymous Kiruv package. There's a million and a half things we're going to go over that you can do. Bottom line is, you can do something. And that's why Hashem made you see it. Because that person that's connected to you, your friend, your colleague, your cousin, your brother, your father, your somebody, he's connected to you. And that's why Hashem made you see them sin. Because you could do something about it. So the Rambam says, it's a mitzvah, it's a positive mitzvah to say something. Now, Shuchan Aruch, the Shuchan Aruch says that a person is actually obligated to admonish a close friend. It's obligated. It's not a, uh, oh, it's nice. And then the Rambam continues, a person who rebukes a colleague, whether because of a wrong committed against him or because of a matter between his colleague and God, should rebuke him privately. Should do it privately. You shouldn't just call him out in the middle of the room. Hey, Rasha, Mirusha, your wife is complaining to me that you just did this. You did. No. No one says do that. Do it privately. Say, hey, listen, you have a few minutes? Go. Talk to him. Five minutes. Do, 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 do. You should speak to him patiently and gently, informing him that he's only making these statements for his colleague's own welfare, to allow him the merit. The life of Olam Abba. Meaning you come to him and say, listen, whether you drive on Shabbat or not, doesn't affect me. I keep Shabbat. Whether you eat pig or not, makes no difference to me. Doesn't affect my diet. I'm not going to start eating pig because of you. I'm not going to start going out with non-Jews because of you. I'm not gonna, nothing's going to change in my life. I'm telling you purely because I love you. And I would like to see you in Olam Abba. Now, none of us know how long we're going to live. None of us know. So everyone thinks they're going to live till 120. That's what we tell everybody. Oh, I mean, you live till 120, 120. In reality, most of us are not going to live till 120. My cousin, as I always remind myself constantly, he didn't have 120. He barely had 20. 23. So, you come to a person and tell him, listen, I'm doing this for you. In reality, you're also doing this for yourself. Why? Because if you don't do it, you have a problem. The Rambam continues and he says, if he accepts the rebuke, good. If not, what if he doesn't, like most people, mind your business. Leave me alone. Go, you do your own mitzvot. Focus on yourself. Focus on yourself. I'll, I'll Live and let live. Live and let live. What about that? If not, the Rambam writes, a person should rebuke him a second and a third time. person is obligated to rebuke his colleague who has done wrong until he gets to the extent where the person hits him. Meaning once or twice or three times, it's not enough. You have to continue trying in different creative ways until you have a person really says to you, punches you, he hits you. Some say he threats to hit you. Some are more lean and say, no, no, he doesn't have to, you have to actually get to the point where you get beat up. Just he says, listen, if you keep sending me these emails, I'm going to... You're patu. You're patu, you're finished. Meaning they're just telling him one time, yeah, I told him to come to Bikinaz, he's not coming. So, okay, so, you know, I'll see him, you know, let him go again, or what I care. No, no, no. 
He's still in your life for a reason. Now, whoever has the possibility of rebuking sinners and fails to do so is considered responsible for that sin. For he had the opportunity to rebuke the sinners. The Gemara, he uses, the Rambam uses the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 54, and also the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 93. And he says, after the destruction of the first temple, the righteous were destroyed, were killed mercilessly by Hashem. And the question that the Chachamim asks is, why did you kill the rabbis first with such lack of mercy? Most horrible death in the world, suffering, unusual death. Why? It says, because the Midat Adin, the Yetzirah came, to listen, Hashem, they knew the entire Torah, they fulfilled the entire Torah, but they kept it to themselves. They kept it to themselves, all of the secular people, all the Mechale Shabbat, they didn't do tshuva. How are they going to do tshuva if the rabbis don't say anything? Hashem says, you're right, punish them first. Why? Because it's as if the entire nation's sin is as if it's their sin. So then it continues in the next halacha and it says, at first a person who admonishes a colleague should not speak to him harshly until he becomes embarrassed. Because you're not allowed to get another person embarrassed as a, it's a special type of sin, you're not allowed to do it, you can get to a point of losing your own ulama ba. But from here we learn that it's forbidden for a person to embarrass a fellow Jew. But, but, it's a very big but. A person should be careful not to embarrass a colleague, whether of greater or lesser statue in public, and not call him a name which embarrasses him, or relate a matter that brings him to shame in his presence, But all of this applies when? This applies when it's between one man and another. However, with regards to spiritual matters where the person that's sinning doesn't repent, doesn't do tshuva after being rebuked a few times in private, then he may be put to shame in public and his sin may be publicized. He may be subjected to abuse, scorn, curses until he repents, as was the practice of all of the prophets of Am Yisrael. So here we see that something significant. We see there's a mitzvah in the Torah: "Amal Someone that embarrasses another Jew in public loses their own share of the world to come. But when it comes to rebuking another person, there's an exception to the rule. There's a very, very extraordinary exception to the rule. The Torah says that if you rebuke the person privately and nicely and calmly and everything was good and he continues driving on Shabbat, he continues going out with the non-Jew, she continues walking around half-naked, she continues making all the men sin by looking at her, and you try telling her in public once, twice, three times, you tried, and she simply... Not interested. He's simply not interested. Then embarrassing in them in public as far as rebuke now becomes permissible. Because desperate times call for desperate measures. How many people are that zealous to actually do this? Very few. 
But the reality is that we see that Hashem, Hashem is telling us, Hashem is telling us that this is to such, such an importance, such a great extent of importance that you have to save these people, that even murdering them in public is permissible, just to save them. It's like you have to give them chemotherapy. You almost have to kill them in order to save their life. Now the Magen Avraham also explains in 608.3, he says that you're supposed to rebuke privately for a sin that's committed privately. But if a person sees another person, sees his colleague make a sin in public, he sees him driving on Shabbat, it's a public sin, he sees his person walking around with a non-Jewish girlfriend or a non-Jewish boyfriend and so on and so forth, this is a public sin that is a desecration of Hashem's name then rebuking them should be done in public. Just like they're desecrating Hashem's name in public, they should be embarrassed in public. Again, these are the halacha. Whether you do it or not is your own cheshbon. But point is to explain to you that if you actually start rebuking people, the Yetzirah is always going to come to you in a very nice way. How is it going to come to you? No, achi, don't do it. You're embarrassing him. You're embarrassing him in public. No, you shouldn't do it. I'll do it on his own. I'll do tshuva on his own. They start giving you all, all of a sudden, everybody becomes a little chacham. Everybody becomes a little wise. No, no, don't embarrass him. No, no, why are you telling him to keep Shabbat? No, I'll figure it out on his own. He heard, he heard. It's okay, it's okay. The Yetzirah is going to come to you like a rabbi. No, no, don't tell him. No, no. why are you telling him to, to be quiet and sure? Why? Why tell him? He knows he needs to be quiet. He just can't do it. Why tell him he's not allowed to drive on Shabbat? He knows. Just let it go. Just let it go. Don't say anything. Why? Because what if you embarrass him? What if he gets embarrassed? He told him, oh, I saw you drive on Shabbat. You're embarrassing him. So he's going to come to you with like a sugya, with like a complication. Like, well, no, not to embarrass him. So how are you rebuking him? So here you see, you have some, after you've, after you've asked to rebuke somebody in private multiple times, Rambam says, you're allowed to rebuke them publicly. But the Magen Avram goes even further. He says, listen, if the sin is private, rebuke them privately. If the sin is public, rebuke them publicly. No, after you try the first one or the second one. Bottom line, if they make a public sin, they're making a public desecration of Hashem, you are allowed 100% lechatchila to rebuke them publicly. Why? They're desecrating Hashem's name in public. It's like they have a huge billboard. Please stop, guys, you're bothering me. So you have a huge billboard, you're saying, I, and they say, I hate Hashem. I hate your father. You're not going to say anything? No, maybe I'll send him a private email. Maybe I'll send him a private email. Amos, please, you're bothering me. So, a person needs to know that a rebuke is part of your mitzvot. It's not some unusual thing that maybe and who and what. It's part of the Torah. Now, if we continue, we continue to see what the Rambam says in Ilchot Shuvah. In Chot Shuvah, he goes even further. He says there are 24 deeds that hold a person from doing Shuvah himself. 24 different types of things that a person can do in their life that can cause Hashem to shut down the door of Shuvah. Not literally to the extent that they cannot do Shuvah at all, but to the extent where he says, if you're going to do Shuvah, you're on your own. 
You want to climb the mountain? Go ahead. I'm not helping you. No rope, no pins, no nails, no nothing. Climb with your bare hands. And anyone that understands the concept of tshuva and understands how much it's the opposite of how we were all brought up, to us to, to think, do tshuva without Hashem, it's impossible. Can't go to the store without Hashem. Can't make it out of the house without Hashem. Can't get out of the bed without Hashem. Do the whole tshuva without Hashem. So these are 24 things a person needs to do everything possible to stay away from them. Because they could actually cause him to literally be punished to the extent where Hashem is not going to help him do tshuva. This is obviously assuming that he's doing this purposefully and intentionally and he's doing it knowingly. A person that doesn't know doesn't have the same judgment as a person that knows. A, a person that doesn't know that, a, uh, for example, that he's not allowed to eat milk and meat is not judged the same way as a person that knows he's not allowed to eat milk and meat but does it anyway. Both are punished. Both are having a sin. But one that does it knowingly is a much, much bigger trouble. So here it's talking about specifically of people that actually know that this is not allowed, but they still do it. So for the commission of severe sins, God will not grant a person to, to, who commits such deeds the ability to repent because of the gravity of their transgressions. One, which we went over, a person who causes the masses to sin. Included in this category is one who holds back to many the opportunity from performing mitzvot themselves. So, here we see that there's a certain type of person, that the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 107, says this is like Gehazi. Gehazi was the Gabai of Elisha Navi. Elisha Navi was a prophet after Eliyahu Navi. And Elisha Navi was a healer, was a prophet, was a man of God, holy of holies. And one time there was a non Jewish king that was sick. Hatzarat, no one was able to cure him. And eventually he got to hear about Elisha Navi. They said, Why don't you go to Elisha Navi? Elisha Navi, through a series of events, healed him. And he was so impressed that he wanted to pay him anything. He said, I'll give you a billion dollars. Anything you want, I'll give you. Elisha Navi said, I don't want any money. I don't want anything. I don't want any money. I didn't do it for money. I did it for Kvod Hashem. I do it to show you, non-Jew, that Hashem runs the world. And only He's the reason why you're healed, not me. I'm just a, the vessel. He was so impressed now, not with the, the fact that He healed him, He was so impressed with Him being a man of God to the extent He said, I want to be like you. I want to be a Jew. And I'm gonna, since I'm a king, I'm going to convert my entire nation to be Jews. So now, Elisha said, it's fine, relax, okay, got to go to class, got to come to the shoe every Tuesday, got to write notes, got to pay attention, got to do a lot of things to converse, not like one, two, three. But fine, okay, no problem, we'll we'll be in touch. Gehazi the Gabai was eating his heart. Gehazi the Gabai says, wait a minute, we just had an opportunity to make bank. We just had an opportunity to make a billion dollars right now. And the guy didn't take any money. It was driving him crazy. He went back to the king and he said, listen, uh, you know, my, uh, my master, 
And he says, Tzaddik, he doesn't really want money, but in reality, he needs a few outfits, he needs a few jackets, a few coats, a few suits, a few this, a few that. You know, if Kvodo, you know, it's not nice for him to ask. Or even to say yes, but I know, I, I deal with all the stuff, so if you could give him a few nice check and help. The king says, no problem, I'll give him whatever he wants, but now he wasn't as impressed anymore. He was impressed with the event and so on, but now he no longer wanted to be a Jew. He's going to become a Noahide. And the Gemara says in Masechet Sanhedrin, Gehazi officially lost his Olam Abba. Now what does it mean, lost Olam Abba? He just disappears into nothing? No. Losing Olam Abba means you go to Gehenom and you never leave. You have eternal suffering. Why? You just destroyed an entire nation. Because each person, he's going to have kids. It's a little nation. Then he, he's, Now this guy was even more so. He was a king. All of his people were going to convert. Each one of them was going to be a big nation. You're going to make another 100, 200, 300, 500 million Jews in the world. You know how many mitzvot 500 million Jews can do? If you just do a shayatzah once a day, 500 million mitzvot. Do Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael already you have another five mitzvot, 500 million. Two and a half, a billion mitzvot. How happy is Hashem going to be with all these mitzvot? You stopped it. Why? You wanted a jacket. You wanted a jacket. You wanted a car. So you destroyed two and a half billion mitzvot every five minutes. So such a person loses their right to do tshuva. Second, a person who leads a fellow man astray from the path of good to the path of bad. For example, somebody who is a missionary, idol worship. Or for, so for example, all of these people, like Yitzhak Shapiro, Imachshimov, Zichro, or uh, the guy uh, Brown, Michael Brown, Imachshimov, or Jesus, Imachshimov, or uh, all of those people that, uh, you know, get Am Yisrael away from Hashem. To either join atheism, like this one particular guy that's been following my thread for the last few weeks, he makes sure that he makes his foolishness heard, either by publicizing one guy is an atheist and another guy is a missionary. So they make sure to make comments because they want people to hear what they say. These people, Rabotai, it's so bad what they do that the Rambam and the Gemara says that even if they will come to you to do tshuva, they come to you and say, no, listen, you know, I brought a bunch of people to do, you know, to become idol worshippers, I brought a bunch of people to become Michalil Shabbat, to, to become atheists, and they come to you and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rambam says you're not allowed to help them. Kabbalah says you're not allowed to help them. Let them die. Don't want to do tshuva? Good luck on your own. Not allowed to help them. Why? Because they are too dangerous. They're so dangerous that you can't trust them at all, even to help them. Third, one who sees his son becoming associated with evil influences and refrains from rebuking him. Since his son is under his authority, where he's, he is the one that's supposed to rebuke him, he would have separated himself from these influences. Hence, by refraining from admonishing his own son, it's considered as if he caused his son to sin. Included in this sin, the Rambam says, are also all of those people that have the potential to rebuke others, whether an individual or a group, because it's a rabbi, refraining from doing so leaves them to their shortcomings. 
all of these rabbis that see their keilah driving on Shabbat, doing things that are not kosher, not kosher business, not kosher behavior, not kosher this, not kosher that, they don't say anything. The Gemara says in Avodah Zarah, in Masechet Shabbat, Sanhedrin, and a few other places, and also the Rambam Posek Lalacha here in Ilchot Shuvah, chapter 4, verse 1, Alacha 1, all of their sins go on that person. Yeah, but I didn't make this sin. I didn't go with the prostitute. He did. Okay, it's like you did. I didn't go uh, drive on Shabbat. Uh, he did. You did. Both of you did. Why? You had the ability and the opportunity to rebuke him. You did nothing. You have a serious problem. So here we see that it's not something we can just be quiet about. The fourth one is someone that says, I will sin and then I will repent. Included in this category is someone that says, I will sin and then Yom Kippur will help me. Yeah, yeah, no one time I'm going to waste seed with this one girl real quick right now, and then I'll do tshuva on Yom Kippur. One time, no, it's one time, it's one time, I'm going to do this one time, one time, it's one time, I'm going to go with this bar, one time, I'm going to go to this bar, one time, and then Yom Kippur, I'll do tshuva, I'll come to the shiur, I'll come to three shiurs next week. I'll come to three shiur, I want shiur, I only come to one shiur one day usually, next week, I'll come to three shiurs. Deal? Like I'm the, I'm the bedin of Shemaim. I'm the Bedin of Shemaim. One guy, you know, right now is the Ilula of the Arizal. I heard a story from a uh, Rav Amer Eliyahu. Chidush for me. Unbelievable. The Arizal had a guy come to him. One of his uh, people came to him and he said, Kvod Rav, how come I don't get any Parnassah? How come I have so many problems with Parnassah? I did, I did, I did, I do tshuva, you know, I uh, keep Shabbat, learn, nah, 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 do all these things I do. The Rizal says to him, oh, why you don't have panasah? Oh, it's because you uh, you had sex with your uh, maid 15 years ago. What? Oh, Kodav, not me. He's looking behind him like he's talking to somebody else. This guy's tzaddik, he's got payers and everything, he's got a hat. What are you talking about? What, is, what are you talking about? Nobody's behind me. No, no, not me. I'm saying I don't have panasah. He goes, yeah, you, you, because you were with your maid 20 years ago, 15 years ago. He says, no, Kvodarav, I didn't do it. He goes, yes, you did. Why are you lying? Because Kvodarav, no. Bemet, Kvodarav, why? It's not nice. Lefe. Lefe. Lefe, embarrassing me. Tell me. So Darizal, says, give me your hand. He's not like me, I'm just telling you stories. He says, give me your hand. He takes his hand, and Darizal, the story goes like this, Darizal takes the neshama, takes the neshama of the non-Jewish maid that he had sex with 15 years ago, out of his hand, and puts it right next to him. He goes, what about this? What do you have to say? Why is she here? Why is she here? Why? Because Agmara tells us that if a person, if a Jew has sex, whether it's a man or a woman, it doesn't make a difference. A Jewish woman with a non-Jewish man or opposite, a Jewish man with a non-Jewish woman. When they are intimate, they're going to be glued to them like a dog. What does it mean? That literally they become their klipa. 
they become part of their klipa. They're on them at all times. That's why it's hard for a woman that's been with a non-Jewish man, it's hard for her to leave him. Even if he beats her and he hits her and he abuses her, it's hard for her to leave him. You see all these poor Israeli girls that were fooled by the Arabs. Now they were fooled. They're getting abused every day. They get hit. They get tortured and everything. Still, it's okay. You want to leave? No, no, no. Maybe no, no. Why not? He hit you. Almost killed you last week. You have eight black eyes. What's the matter with you? Why are you staying there? No, you know, he has a good heart. What good heart? He almost killed you six times in the last six months. What's the matter with you? It's hard for her to leave him. It's hard for her to leave him. You see this also American girls. American girls that have a non-Jewish boyfriend for a little while. It's very hard for her to leave. You have to, it's like, you have to pray for a miracle for them to break up. Because it's literally a miracle. Same thing with a young guy with a non-Jewish girl. Very hard for him to get over her. Very hard. Why? She literally becomes part of his neshama, but not a good one. Not a good one. The Arizal took it out of his hand. He goes, no, what's this? What do you have to say? What do you have to say about this one? What busha? What chirpa? What embarrassment? You just lied to your rabbi. He thought it was me. He thought it was me that you could lie to my face and I wouldn't know anything. You're like the Narizal. He brought you the Neshama out of your body. Here you go. No words. And he threw it back in his body. He goes, no, why would you put it back? He goes, no. No, it's, it's, it's yours. I can't keep it out here. It's yours. It comes back anyway. Here's a pound I say, I do tshuva. A tshuva. He goes, so what do I do? He goes, you have to tikkun. The tikkunim, and that's why the Arizal put a lot of tikkunim, order of tikkunim that a person needs to do, tshuva for every single sin that he made. It's not so simple, Rabotai, to just go up there to Shemaim with a bunch of sins. Some people go on vacation thinking that they're making mitzvot because they're taking the family on vacation. They come back with a, uh, a truckload worth of sins. They embarrassed each other. They embarrassed the Shem. They embarrassed their neighbor. They stole from the hotel. They stole from each other. They yelled at people. They violated Shabbat. They didn't keep Shabbat. They went into the pool with mixed uh, opposite sex. And they go on. Religious people, they go on vacation. They come back as Korach. What happened? What, God's not on vacation? He's only at home in yeshiva? So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. A person needs to understand it's a big deal. You cannot say, I'll do a sin today, but I'll do tshuva next week. I'll come to three shiurs. It's not going to help you. That mindset is a mindset of a kufil. That's why the Rambam says, this is one of the conditions that could get a person to such a level where Hashem says, no tshuva for you. No tshuva. Why? You're treating me like a joke. You're treating me like a joke. You're saying you're going to spit in my face but you're going to wipe it for me after. That's Kvod Hashem. Second halacha continues. He says, among the thir- 24 or 5 deeds which cause the path of tshuva to be locked before those who commit them. They are, one who separates himself from the community. When they repent, he will not be together with them and he will not have the opportunity to, be, to share their merit. So a lot of people that do tshuva, like me, for example, they want to go into a cave. Like if it was up to me, I would go into a cave right now, bring my little family with me, go in a cave, see you guys later. 
Yavra Mizrahi, you don't need me. In reality, a lot of us want to do it. Why? Much easier life. You don't have anybody making notes in your lecture driving you crazy for two hours. You don't have people making videos against you. You don't have people breaking your chops left and right. You don't have panasa problem. You're in a cave. Fine. Sounds ideal. Sounds fantastic. Except when it comes to bugs and stuff. I don't really like bugs. But anyway, aside from the bugs, if you found like some type of repellent, you're good. But the reality is that's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants you to be part of the keilah. He wants you to be part of the community. You cannot separate yourself. Now, that's only assuming the community is a decent community. Not if the community is a bunch of uh, Haman, Paro and Nebuchadnezzar, with a talit on. No, we're talking about it's a decent community. Now, what happens if you can't find a decent community? If you don't live in a decent community, move. Move. All of us need to understand, you have no right to expect to be comfortable. Again, you have no right to expect to be comfortable. No right to expect to be comfortable. Why? Hashem's house was destroyed. He doesn't have a house. Why should you have a house? Hashem doesn't have a house. Why should you have a house? Yeah, but I worked really hard. Everybody works hard. So what? Yeah, but it will make me more righteous. Who said? You know how many people have a $200 million house, $100 million house in the biggest Hashem in the world? Hashem wants you to be exactly where you are. And He wants you to serve Him under those conditions. A person came to the Chafetz Chaim one time and he asked him, Kvodarav, is there a key to Gan Eden? I told you guys this story a few weeks ago. The Chafetz Chaim told him, yes, there is. What? Be happy with your situation and serve Hashem to the best possible ability that you have. Under those conditions, he goes, yeah, but what if uh, I don't have a house? What if I don't have a wife? What if I don't have any money? What if I don't have this? What if I don't have that? He goes, exactly. You serve him like as if you're a little Moshe Rabbeinu, a Sarai Imenu, a Avraham Avinu. You're like the best of the best. Serve him under those conditions. Why? Because he puts you in those conditions because that's what he wants. So to say, no, Hashem, if you gave me this, in essence, it's kfirah. In essence, you're saying, Hashem, I think you're making a mistake. It'll be easy for me if you do something else for me. You're telling Hashem how to run his business. What if I went into your store and told you how to run your business? You throw me out of the store. Why? It's like, what are you, were you an investor? You're, you own a piece of this company? Who are you? You're not even a customer. You didn't even buy any donuts. Get out of here. Don't tell me how to run my shop. So why are you telling Hashem how to run the shop? A person who contradicts the words of the sages, Shem Yachem, this is one of the most common sins in Judaism today. A person who contradicts the words of the sages, the controversy he provokes will cause him to cut himself off from them, and thus he will never know the ways of repentance. People that decide they want to be Rashi, they want to be Rambam, they want to be the commentary on the Torah. They don't want to look up what Rashi and Rambam and the rest of the tzaddikim and history said. They want to say what it says. Oh, no, no, I'm, li- I'm reading it literally, like the Christians. The Christians read the Torah like it's a Harry Potter book. 
That's why Christianity is what it is, the disaster that it is. There's no two Christians are alike. There's, I'm serious. There's no two Christians in the world that are alike. Every single Christian has a different belief. One guy believes he's, the guy's uh, God, the other one believes he's a son, the other guy believes he's a Mashiach, the other guy believes he's a prophet, the other guy believes he's a rabbi, the other guy doesn't believe him at all, he believes in somebody else. Everybody's confused. Why? Because they all decided that each person could just be the metagem, the, the commentary himself. This is so forbid, such a, a, a sin in Judaism that a person that does not give honor to the sages, that Hashem instilled power in them, that said, he said, Hashem says, these people, they're like my mouth. A person that disrespects the sages and the words of the sages can lose his ability to do tshuva. Why? Because only listening to them will be your tshuva. So if you're, if you're, if you're making fun of them, how are you going to do tshuva? It's even worse when you get other people to make fun of them. Like some of these people that make videos. They make videos. Nah, I think this guy is silly. I don't, I don't agree with this guy. I don't agree with that guy. Like it's one of his buddies. Like this guy Ben Shapiro that everybody likes. And I find, I think I just saw a couple of his videos. And before I saw those videos, I thought he was a clever young man. Knew quite a bit about politics. Had some decent uh, things to say about Judaism and uh, as far as uh, the values and uh, you know anti-abortion and things like that. And I thought until that point, a few videos that I watched, I thought it was pretty good. Until I heard him say some things about Torah. Once I heard him say things about Torah, I realized the guy is a walking chilul Hashem. First and foremost, he knows absolutely nothing. But because he has a debating ability, he has the ability to debate anything, he's a debater. A debater, and I can tell you from experience, can make himself sound like he knows everything about everything. Because part of a debate is to feed off of you. It's like judo. The art of winning in judo is using the other person's strength against himself. That's also debating. So you don't need to know anything about the subject. You just want to hear the other guy and then use his own words against him. And that's what he does. The problem is that when you use it with politics, no one really cares as far as Shemaim. Like, ah, it doesn't make that much of a difference. No one cares because none of these politicians can do anything anyway. Hashem runs the world. But when you start doing it in the name of God, and you start pretending like you know what God said, and no, no, I don't really think that uh, the Mashiach is like what the sages say. I think it's just going to be a politician, he says. I think the Mashiach is going to be a politician. Or he says, uh, he has a uh, discussion with a Christian. He says, yeah, you know, us Jews, we have a lot of crap to do. He calls the mitzvot crap. He calls the mitzvot crap. And other stupid statements like that. This is a person that you can't count on minyan. You can't count them in minyan. Why? He's so arrogant. He's so arrogant that <laughs> how is he going to do tshuva? He's making fun of the only way he can do tshuva. He decided that he's going to be the, the commentary. So hopefully he watches this and he realizes that maybe he should stick to politics. You want to stick to politics, that's what your profession is, that's what you want to do with your life, you want to waste your life doing it, enjoy it. Whatever you want to do, do it. That's, that's, uh, there's no uh, problem. But stop talking Torah. Remove those videos. Why? Because what you're saying is against the Torah. 
And apparently one of his recent videos from February said that he has a plan to talk about the differences and similarities between Christianity and Judaism. The problem is that during the interview that he talks about Christianity and Judaism, he sounds more like a Christian. He doesn't sound like a Jew. His whole basis of knowledge is based on a book by the Rambam called Morei Nevuchim, Guide of the Perplexed, the most complicated book written in the last thousand years. The most of the Gedolei Ado will tell you you're not allowed to read it unless you're actually a Talmid Chacham. Why? Because if you're not a Talmid Chacham, it'll actually turn you into a heretic because you won't understand the genius of the Rambam. You just won't understand it. We are closer to monkeys than we are to the Rambam. But if you think, like Ben Shapiro, that the Rambam was just another person, or even said some of the prophets were like regular people, like you and me. Yeah, not prophets, they were just regular people. You know, they were just regular people delivering a message, like regular people, like you and me. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says that if the sages themselves are saying about themselves, the same sages that the Gemara says can revive the dead. Somebody died, they wanted to live, that's the sages. The Gemara says, these sages, they said, listen, if the previous generation, not the prophets, not the prophets, just like Hillel, or Shmaya Naftalion, or Betcha, just that, just the previous generation from them, if they were angels, if they were angels, then we are men. But if they were men, we are donkeys. Meaning, and the Ben Ishchai puts commentary on it, he goes, what does it mean to us? Another 1,500 years later, he says, anyone that thinks that the sages of even just the one previous generation were like them, they were regular people, Kabbalah says, you're a donkey. Just for thinking that, you're a donkey. It's, you can't compare the two, but you're only going to know that after you learn the genius of their words. Superficially, you just hear a rabbi's name, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi this, Rabbi this. And it sounds all the same. It sounds like a regular person. But once you see the genius in their words, you realize they're as far from a regular person as you are from being a monkey. And that's one of the most important things that a person needs to know. You cannot compare yourself to the sages. Next, a person who scoffs at mitzvot, since he considers them as degrading, he will not pursue them or fulfill them, he does not fulfill the mitzvot, how can he merit to do tshuva? person that says, no, being modest is demeaning. Why is somebody going to tell me how to dress? No, doing this is demeaning. It's, it's telling me what to do. No, I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a grown-up. I can tell myself what to do. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. And that's, by the way, the root of all atheism. The root of all atheism is pride. Pride that's so big, you don't want anyone to tell you what to do. Even if it's God. So since you can't tell people, listen, I don't want God to tell me what to do, what do you say? He doesn't exist. Next, someone who demeans his teachers. This will cause them to reject and dismiss. Just like Gehazi. In this period of rejection, he will not find a teacher or guide to show him the path of truth. People that go to Shi'urim, people that learn online, people that go to a rabbi, they start doing tshuva. Little by little, they do good. Do, 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 do. Then they find another rabbi. Or they decide that they're going to start learning on their own. And instead of just saying, thank you very much, rabbi, for saving my life and doing tshuva, instead they say, oh no, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. 
I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Why? Because I read one book. Yeah, but he read a thousand. Yeah, but no, somebody told me. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Who? Some other guy. But did he ever say anything to prove that he doesn't know what he's talking about? No, but, uh, you know, uh, I already watched all of his shooting. Someone who demeans his teachers loses his ability to do tshuva, Hashem Echem. You know how many of these people we deal with on a daily basis in the Kirov world? Next, one who hates rebuke. One who hates when people tell him what to do, that he's making a sin. This will not leave him a path of repentance. Why? Because rebuke is the only way to do tshuva. Rebuke leads to tshuva. That's the point of rebuke if it's real rebuke. He doesn't say if you give him a hug and you call him tzaddik, then he'll do tshuva. He doesn't say that, the Rambam. The Rambam, holy of holies, a living Sefer Torah, 900 years ago says, you want him to do tshuva? Here's the way. How? Rebuke him. Tell him, you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. You're not allowed to be with her. You're not allowed to be with him. Tell him. Why? It's the only way he's going to change. You need to tell him he's wrong. You need to tell him he's going in the wrong direction. Don't tell him he's a tzaddik, because if he's a tzaddik, why would he change? If you tell him he's a tzaddik, if you tell him everything is good, if you tell him, no, don't worry, take it one step at a time, one day in, you know, 3,000 years from now. You know, you'll do tshuva. No, don't worry. All of Amisel has a share of the world to come. You're okay. Don't worry. I'll talk to Hashem for you. Like all this nonsense, you're not going to help him. And that's what Alakha, 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 This is not a philosophy book. This is Alakha. He continues. And he gives different examples of different rebukes in the Torah in Deuteronomy 9.7, Deuteronomy 29.3.2.6. Also in the, the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah screams at the nation, says, Are you so sinful nation? An ox knows better. An ox knows its owner. Meaning that even an ox, a donkey, knows who owns him, but you guys don't know who owns you. Here he says something that just gives us a little bit of a taste of how times have changed, how our mentality has changed. The Rambam says, God commanded us to rebuke the transgressors. As he says, call out from your throat, do not spare it. In the book of Isaiah chapter 58 verse 1. And Rambam continues and he says, similarly, all of the prophets rebuked Amisrael until she repented. Meaning, the only time that Hashem sent a prophet 
It's not to go send him a bunch of good news. Hey, happy birthday to you. He didn't say nothing. No, a prophet didn't come with a birthday cake. He didn't come with a birthday cake. What did he come with? He came to tell people, hey, you sinful people. You should be ashamed of yourself. Why are you destroying your own neshamot? Why are you causing yourself to suffer? And without even realizing you're causing yourself to suffer. Why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you going against Hashem? Why are you going against the hand that feeds you? And so on and so forth. Why? Why? He says that was the job of the, of the prophets. Every single one of them, not a single one, was every single one of them, that was their job. So if a person says, Hashem, please give me Ruach HaKodesh, Hashem, please give me a prophecy, Hashem, please give me uh, the ability to, to... Okay, you want to be a rebuker? You want to go tell people what to do? Because that's the job. It doesn't tell you, oh, listen, you could see the future and uh, keep it to yourself. Be a fortune teller. Make some money in the stock market. Meaning, if Hashem gave you what you want, He gave you Ruach HaKodesh, He gave you prophecy, can you use it? You don't know what to do with it? So, therefore, it's proper for each and every congregation in Am Yisrael to hire a great sage of venerable age with a reputation of Yirat Shamaim, a fear of heaven, from his youth, beloved by the community, to rebuke the masses and to motivate them to do tshuva. The person who hates admonishment will not come to the, pre- to, to the lecture or hear his words. Accordingly, he will continue his sinful path which he regards as good. The Rambam says, every single keila, okay, you have the rabbi, good for you. You have the gabai, good for you. You have the cleaning lady, good. You have the administrator, you have the board, you have the this, you have the that. Oh, great! You don't have a rebuker? Your keila is worthless. Why? No one's going to do tshuva. People are going to use it as a coffee shop. People are going to come there to socialize. Every keilah, the Rambam says, here, this is alakha, this is not like, oh, it's a nice thing to do. Every keilah, you have to have someone to come rebuke the people. Ideally, it's the job of the rabbi. But not every rabbi can do it, especially today with the boards of directors and nonsense that they have in every, every keilah. But you're supposed to have somebody come rebuke your people to do tshuva. So you say to them, yeah, what about, are you going to turn them off? You know, everybody says, oh, if he says he's going to turn them off, Rambam answers you too. What do you say? The person that doesn't like to be rebuked, he won't even come to the lecture. So what? He doesn't come to the lecture. You can't turn off something that's already off. Among these 24, oh, and he continues in the Dvarim uh, Rabbah, says that the blessings that were uttered by Moshe were supposed to be uttered by Moshe and the uh, rebukes were the blessings should have been uttered by Moshe and the admonishments by Bil'am. However, the admonishments were stated by Bil'am. Oh, oh. So, here the, uh, the Midrash says that, how come, how come Moshe didn't give the Amisal blessings, just tell everybody that Sadiqim. And Hashem should have used maybe uh, Bilam. Bilam as the person that rebukes them. Why didn't he just do that? Because Bilam was also a prophet. So the Midrash explains 
if Bilam would come to them as a prophet and tell them, listen, you're going this, you're doing that, you're going to go to Gainom if you don't do tshuva and so on, they would have said to Bilam, he's like, wait, what is this? You're our enemy. You're our enemy. How are you going to rebuke us? Who's going to listen to you? Here the Midas is trying to explain to us is that Hashem specifically used Moshe Rabbeinu as the person that should rebuke the nation. Why? Because it was clear that He loved them. If you want to rebuke somebody with an actual purpose to help them do tshuva, you have to start with You have to love them. If your rebuke comes from love, it'll work. If it comes from arrogance, it's better you don't do it because it's a sin. There are five transgressions that can make complete tshuva impossible for a person. And these are it. A person who curses many without cursing a specific individual. Somebody screams out a curse. Ah, all the Ashkenazim. Ah, all the Sephardim. Somebody says something like that, they can't do tshuva. They can do tshuva for everything else, for Shabbat, for Tarad Mishpacha, for this, for that. But for, for the curse that they insulted all the Ashkenazim, all the Sfaradim, all of the Ethiopians, all the converts, all of that, you can't do complete tshuva for that. Why? Go find all of them, say I'm sorry. It's very important for a person to watch their words. Very important to watch their words. Why? Cost yourself eternity. Ken. No, they don't lose a share of the world to come, but they can't. They, their, their tshuva cannot be completed in this world. They have to go to Genom. They have to go to Gilgul. Or they have to have certain type of suffering. They, have to, they cannot complete their tshuva here. Why? Because they can't say I'm sorry to all the victims. Give up hope. Ah, here's the thing. Listen to what I'm saying here. If he said it to an individual, he says, I'm sorry to the individual. It's easy. You did tshuva, chazak baruch. You're good. Finished. You said, I'm sorry. He accepted the apology. Good. We're not talking about that. We're talking about someone going generally, just going against an entire keilah of people, saying all the Ashkenazim, not this Ashkenazi, or this Faradi, or this Litai, or this rabbi. No, no, not specific person. That you can do tshuva for. Why you go there, say I'm sorry. They accept it. Even if you do it a thousand times, until they expect you, accept your apology, you're good. But, if you say it to everybody, then you have a problem. Why? Because you can't say I'm sorry to everybody. And this is specifically for cursing. It's not just for saying uh, sometimes stupid things. Next, one who takes a share of a thief's gain. This unfortunately is a lot more common than you would imagine. Sometimes people are so into money, they can easily forget God. So what they do is they have a store, they have a business, and they buy goods. They resell them. And once in a while, somebody comes with a, a few things that fell off the truck. For a big discount. 
instead of buying the phones for 400 bucks a piece, it's uh, 150. Why? Ah, it's a deal. What deal? He stole everything. That's what everybody knows. Everything is stolen. Everything is stolen. He says a person that takes and buys from those people cannot complete their tshuva in this world. Cannot complete their tshuva in this world. Why? He doesn't know who the stolen goods belong to. Meaning if he wants to do tshuva, he has to return the stolen goods. He can't, he can't sell, resell them. So the thief steals from many, brings it to him to share it, and he takes it. And not only is this bad enough, but now the fact that he's buying it from him reinforces the thief to continue stealing. Meaning you become a partner in a crime in multiple ways. Next, one who finds a lost object and does not announce immediately in order to return it to its owners. Afterwards, when he desires to do tshuva, he will not know to whom to return the article. You found something. And you know it's a, it belongs to a Jew. You found a wallet. And as the ID, you know who it belongs to. It belongs to a, uh, a certain Jew in your kila, in your community, or even if he lives in Minnesota. It doesn't make a difference. But you know it belongs to a Jew. You know it belongs to them. It's not like it's, there's no sign. If there's no sign, you're allowed to take it, no problem. If it belongs to a goy, belongs to a non-Jew, you're not, allowed, you're not obligated to return it, but you should for the sake of Kiddush Hashem. But if it belongs to a Jew, you're obligated to return it to them, unless it will cost more to return it than what it's worth. So for example, if you found a pin with a little baby picture on it, the pin's worth, I don't know, $3. And you know whose baby it is, but the baby, but they live in Australia. To mail the pin to Australia will cost you, I don't know, $60. You don't have no obligation to return the pin. But if you have a wallet, you find a wallet and it has $500 or $1,000 or $5,000 and it has the ID of a Jewish person, you're obligated to return it to them. Now, if you do not announce that this actually happened, this could hurt your tshuva ability. Why? When you actually finally decide to do tshuva, you're going to forget who it's, who it's owned by. Yes. Again, only problem is, is because, because not considered Amecha, the only problem is that if he does Tshuva, you have to maintain the status of whether he does Tshuva or not. That's the problem. He's a Jew. That's why, that's why to, uh, to, to do, for example, you're allowed to lend a Jew, you're not allowed to lend a Jew money and charge him uh, interest. If you lend a Jew money, you're not allowed to charge him interest. If you do, you lose Olam Abba. So now, what if the Jew doesn't keep Shabbat? Then you're allowed, according to Allah, since he's considered a Jew that violates Shabbat, is considered 100% an idol worshiper. And you are allowed, and it's actually a mitzvah, to charge an idol worshiper interest. The mitzvah is to charge him interest. Now a Jew that violates Shabbat is considered an idol worshiper, which means you're allowed to charge him interest. But the problem is, if he does tshuva, there are certain opinions that say you have to return all the interest back. That could create a very serious problem, which is the reason why they say that even though you're allowed to charge a Jew that doesn't keep Shabbat interest, you shouldn't do it anyway. Because ideally we'd like all of Amisel to do tshuva. Next, a person who eats an ox belonging to the poor, orphans or widows. These are unfortunate people 
who are not well known or recognized by the public. They wander from city to city. There's no one that can identify them and know who, uh, to whom uh, the ox belonged to in order to uh, that they may be returned to him. In so many words, you take advantage of the poor, the orphans, the widows. You have now violated Hashem's word in 36 different places in the Torah. 36 different places in the Torah, it mentions how Hashem protects the convert. And by going against the convert, taking advantage of them you know, in business, even putting pressure on them to buy something from you, buy your house, buy your car, buy your product, it's a sin from the Torah. People need to tread carefully when they deal with converts, poor people, orphans. You can't just insult them just because they're poor or they're orphans or anything like that. and Because that could get you to such a point that you could literally lose your ability to do complete tshuva in this world. You could do tshuva, but not complete tshuva. Some people that do it on a, uh, you know, on a, on a massive scale and it becomes a chilul Hashem have a very, very serious problem when they get to Shemaim. Yes? Ken. No, I mean, it's, it's different. If they're doing an auction, it's, it's in essence, you're encouraging them to do mitzvah. Uh, you're encouraging them to do mitzvah, to donate money to a shul, donate money to a community, donate money to a mikveh, kiruv, so on, things like that. You're trying to encourage people to do mitzvah. Uh, but of course, everything has to be done with tact. Everything has to be done with care. If you know that the person uh, is interested and able in fulfilling this mitzvah, good. But if you know for sure that this person doesn't have money to eat, and in essence, you're zeroing in on them to ask them for money, then you're embarrassing them. So then you have a very serious problem. So of course, everybody has to know their customer, know who they're dealing with, and be careful. Be careful with all these things. Because either way, even if they're not a convert, to go, if let's say, for example, somebody came to, uh, let's say, the White House, and uh, Donald Trump has a little, he has a few kids, and one of them is really little. I think he's like 10 or something, or 13. He's a little kid, cute little kid. Somebody just jumped the fence, goes over, goes to the playground where the little kid is, and slaps him in the face. What do you think his future is going to look like? A little bleak, right? He's going to have a few black eyes for probably two centuries. Why? You just punched the, uh, the, the, the president's uh, kid, a little kid in the face. Now, what do you think is going to happen if somebody does the same thing to the king of kings? So that's the thing. When a person embarrasses another Jew... It really shouldn't matter whether they're a convert or orphan or poor or not. If you understand the significance of a Jew in Shemaim, that the whole world exists just for him, to go and embarrass him, to go and insult him, you have to, you're playing with a volcano. So even more so if it's a convert, because then you have even additional sins. Because a convert, you're actually obligated to love a convert more than a natural born Jew. The Rambam actually writes in Halakha, you're actually obligated to love the convert as much as you love God. To that extent. If that's even understandable. If it wasn't written, we wouldn't be allowed to say it. Next, it's getting a little late, so we'll try to finish. One who takes a, a bribe to pervert judgment. Why? Why, 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 is, why is such a person in serious trouble? 
aside from the obvious. He doesn't know the extent of the perversion or the power. He doesn't know how much wrong his perversion of the justice has caused. I don't know the, 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 uh, the, the magnitude of the, the domino effect. Why? There was, two, there was a case, two people. He said, listen, the uh, rich guy, he's got plenty of money. Poor guy, Miske, doesn't have any money. Even though the rich guy is right, let me do a mitzvah. Let me do a mitzvah and help the poor guy. Help the poor guy. Give the rich guy a thousand bucks. Give the, uh, I'm sorry, give the uh, poor guy a thousand dollars. Rich guy has millions. Millions he has. It's $1,000. It's not even uh, an hour interest. Big deal. So he judges in favor of the poor guy thinking he's Robin Hood, thinking he's uh, doing a mitzvah. Now he doesn't know what's the extent of the damage. Why? The rich guy go home and uh, he tells his wife, can you believe it? Remember that uh, janitor that was working for me? That I caught him stealing from the office? You remember? She goes, yeah, of course. Yeah, I just lost. I lost the case. I sued him. I lost. They made me pay him $1,000. His wife says, what? What a loser you are. What kind of, this, this, is, this, is, this is all the companies, all the wisdom you have, all the stuff you lost to a janitor. What a loser you are. What? Me? You call me a loser? Tah! He slaps his wife in the face. Call me a loser? Ah! They get divorced. They get divorced. Little kids are crying in the streets. Abba is not home anymore. He's a loser. Ima says he's a loser. The kids now don't have an Abba anymore. Why? Because uh, what happened? So the kids have a broken home. Now the yeshiva says, listen, I'm sorry, ma'am. We're uh, very prejudiced yeshiva. We only uh, allow kids that have both father and mother. They both have to be winners. Your, your husband, ex-husband, he's a loser. We're not going to let you. You have to go to public school. Now the kids go to public school. They become goyim. Now they're going to go marry goyim. Now they're going to be goyim. Now everybody goes off the deck. You just destroyed nations. Not nation, nations. Why? You perverted just for a thousand bucks. Now obviously I've exaggerated things, but this is actual reality. This is actual reality. This is how the world works. People don't understand the magnitude of their actions and how a domino effect works. As we continue and almost done... There's five transgressions that it's unlikely that a person who commits them will actually even do tshuva. Like once a person gets to such an extent of doing these sins, most likely he's not going to do tshuva. Why? He's far. He's far from the truth. So far. What are these sins? One who eats from a meal which is not sufficient for, for his owners. The guy shows up at his rabbi's house. Hey, rabbi, how are you? Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to drop by. Oh, you guys are eating? All right, can, can I sit down with you guys? Now, he does. He's not thinking, oh, maybe the rabbi lives off of uh, $1,000 a year. Nobody donates any money. Nobody gives him any help. The guy has just collected some change in the back in between the couch.